Punk Chick, and you are listening to the Quarter to Three Movie Podcast, where this week we are going to talk about Hannah. Mm. Now, I don't normally do this, but before I introduce folks, uh, a lot of times we'll say, you know, we're going to spoil it for you, so if you haven't seen a movie, think carefully about whether you want it spoiled. If you haven't seen Hannah, just don't listen to this podcast. Uh, I think it's safe to say we all really liked it, and I think we're all going to be speaking very enthusiastically. We all want you to see it, and we don't want you to know anything about it. So don't watch trailers. Don't listen to this podcast. Just, I think, rest assured that we all recommend Hannah. And from here on out, if you haven't seen it, it's not going to be as good uh, if you go see it without listening to us. So there you go. That said, let me introduce who is here. Uh, I am Tom Chick, and I'm joined by Christian Merdansty. It's okay. Um, it's it's a tough name to pronounce I, I'm because I'm from Sri Lanka, and you don't speak English. <laughs> and also Kelly Wand, who Kelly Wand, what is our Hannah tagline? Oh, okay. Remember I had a Ben Affleck story for you? No, <laughs> I do not remember. Uh, but so you've, okay. got a, you've got a Ben Affleck story instead of a Hannah tagline? No, it's the punchline of the Ben Affleck story, but it's like super fast. Okay. Okay. So this dude's directing uh, Ben Affleck in a movie, and he's taking a, the director guy. One part of the story is not true. But he's taking a nap in a chair on the set, and uh, he hears a fap sound, and he looks up, and Ben Affleck's uh, got his balls on his head, on the director's head, and he says, meet the gardener. So that's my catchphrase. That's a little long to fit on the poster. Uh, that's what Ben Affleck do. said. Uh, <laughs> Uh, Dingus, why don't you tell us what this Hannah thing is? Go ahead and uh, mild spoilers, uh, if if you even need to provide any. Uh, what, what do you got for us about Hannah? Get it? Because she's a minor. Um, this week we saw Hannah, a 2011 action thriller movie directed by Joe Wright and written by Seth Lockhead and David Farr. And wait, hold, up, hold, is... that, hold that thought, Dingus. Do you agree with me that folks should stop listening if they haven't seen it? Um, I don't really give anything away, but I, I think that you covered that earlier, and I don't think any of those people are here anyway. So I don't know if, and if I even need, need to say anything else. We can just go on to Kelly. How much at length can we keep saying, don't listen if you haven't seen it? Don't Kelly, listen. why do you agree that we should run people off? I mean, do, we, do you think we should run people off if they haven't seen it, or are you kind of like, no, nah, they could listen? Yeah, but they already know that. All right. I mean, they're uh, either yeah. and also for everyone who did see it and is listening responsibly, they've had to listen to us gibber on about, OK, here are the rules. Don't listen to us if you're 98 percent of the public. OK, well, Dingus, what? Uh, so you mentioned the uh, the director and the writer. Uh, go on. What else do you want to say about Hannah before we throw it over to Kelly? I'm surprised that you would be concerned that I might give something away. Yeah. Why are you worried? Dingus never gives anything away. I'm that asshole. Here's what I was going to say in case there's anybody listening who isn't going to listen to Kelly. Uh, The film is a tale of a parent raising a child and sending her out into the world. It stars Saoirse Ronan, Eric Bana, Kate Blanchett, and Tom Hollander, and is rated PG-13 for intense sequences of violence and action, some sexual material, and language. Oh, language. Stop listening. That is a spoiler. (laughs) language in it 
All right, so so it's okay for thirteen year old kids. Um, it's okay yes. for them to be in the movie as right. long as they're orphans. <laughs> but it'll traumatize every twelve year old, according to the scientists at the MPAA. Uh, I saw it with a fella. The first time I saw it, as a fellow behind me who had with him, I presume they were his daughters, two girls about 13, who could not stop talking. So I, I officially think 13-year-old kids should not see this if they're going to talk. It's going after the, that dude who brought his daughters. Unless I, they I, talk like Anna. Uh, so, Kelly Wan, what is our – do you have a can – you, can you now spoilerize it thoroughly for anyone listening? Go ahead and ruin the experience for them. Can I? Hmm. By the way, uh, I figured out what these synopses are or represent to me. It's Mm -hmm. my revenge on movie studios for not hiring me to give them these notes beforehand. Ah, this is what they're missing out on. Yeah. Take that, people who take my gift to you for free now that it's too late. Basically. So, right. so this is what Focus Features could have had early on if they'd brought yeah. it on board. All right. And then they'll hear it and go, we're not going to hire that asshole who trashed our movie. <laughs> Fuck that guy. No, it's me burning a bridge of the future, much like Ayn Rand's train. <laughs> I don't know why you guys don't want to see that. But anyway, here's the henopsis I uh, whittled together out of spare parts. Um, <clears throat> Tom, how many times have you seen this movie, by the way? I'm just curious. Uh, twice. Mm, okay. What about you? Uh, once. <laughs> Is that I a spoiler that I, that I liked it enough to go a second time? We'll talk. Okay. We'll get to the real. The I real also want to say, you know, we all saw this together. The moment that it was over, and I don't know what was behind this. The moment it was over, because I saw it, and then I was like, hey, guys, we should do a Hannah podcast. So we all went together, and the moment it was over, Kelly Wan goes, God damn it, Tom. <laughs> I have no idea what was behind that. Uh, that was when the title card flashed. That's right. Why. That's, That's when he farted. All right. Again. <laughs> oh, yeah, we'll get to that. Okay. I'll explain my God damn it. There's a reason to it. I don't just say that things for random. It wasn't Tourette's. Okay. <laughs> for random. Uh. Yeah, the Tourette's is about to start right now. Okay, so <clears throat> there's this almost clear-skinned, let-the-right-one-in-looking chick who lives in Alaska, Germany, with a beardedly-accented man named Eric von Banya, uh, who teaches her stuff like how to just miss the heart of your prey so you can trash-talk at first, even if it doesn't speak English, because it's a deer and German. And he also teaches her how to fit in normal with other kids by going, my name is Hannah Miroskriptopper. I live at 13 Rue Madeline. I have an ocelot named Rube Goldberg device. I own a mansion and a yacht. Oh, also FYI, I am not an assassin or anything like Steve Rogers if he was an assassin, only less girly. And Eric Von Banana has also got this box with the red button on it. And uh, one day when the movie's 10 minutes long, he's all, okay, uh, happy eighth birthday again. Um, yeah, so we'll cover puberty next week. But um, just uh, FYI again, like Kelly said, 
uh, if you flip this switch on this box that my old bosses gave me in case I ever turned on them and stole you from the genetics lab before they framed me for the murder of your mother that I was somehow in a car with, but Kate Blanchett tricked me by standing behind a billboard like Wiley Coyote with a 22 caliber pistol, <laughs> which when she shot at my windshield missed me and your mom, but also made me flip the car over because it was scary. And that's what they teach us in Assassin 101, how to flip your car off screen to avoid incoming bullets. But none of this was really my point. Um, happy birthday. Oh, also, too, if you flip this switch, our enemies will know where we are and capture and kill one or both of us for reasons I'll explain someday later when we're really pressed for time because you push this button. Okay? Ready to push the button yet? I know I'm ready to watch you push it. And she's all, wait, why do I look so much like Kate Blanchett again if she's not my mom? And she doesn't know what music is, so he reads it to her from the dictionary. Music, a bunch of sounds that you hear during a PG-13 fight montage with lots of percussion. And she's all, hmm. Oh, yeah, also, what's a dictionary? And also, what's the proper response to a boy kissing me in a PG-13 movie when I look this young and we don't want to have to worry about introducing more characters to get killed off by my fake mom with the southern accent whose chief assassin is a Moroccan tranny who whistles a lot, if you know what I mean? And he's all, yeah, you know what? Maybe I should just hit the button. <laughs> Fatherhood's dumb. And a couple scenes hang out, and then a plane flies overhead one day, which never happened before. Just like uh, M. Night Shyamalan's The Village. And she goes, Papa, is that music? Diesel fumes. They smell so beautiful. And the sound of those plane rotors are way more musical and enchanting to me than all these dumbass birds I've been listening to for eight years. Dad, what are you doing? Because he's creeping up on her with a gun, except it's pointed at his own head. And he's checking his watch and yawning. And he goes, okay, I guess you're ready. Push the button and kill a bunch of dumbasses. Because once they know you're alive, they'll never give up looking for you, which for reasons you'll someday still not understand is way better than just living in our quiet lives out here in the North Pole woods. And she goes, oh, Papa, you're so silly. I'm not going to push anything. And he goes, well done, Hannah. You are now a woman. Make me some coffee. And she's all, yay, woods. And she starts the coffee machine, but accidentally turns on the thing because she thought it was the coffee machine because she doesn't know what coffee is. And the button summons these snowtroopers with hazmat goggles to shoot up the house. And her dad tricks them by disappearing off screen from the surrounded cabin and letting her get captured. So they put her in a cell with a bunch of cameras and the coffee machine calls Kate Blanchett, who's obsessed with making her dentures bleed like wolves fangs. And they put Hannah into the source code submarine room and a doctor goes, hi, Hannah, don't worry, this isn't sucker punch. You're really here right now. What or who can we get you that you won't strangle with your rubber-like superpowers? And she goes, Kate Blanchett. So they send in Tilda Swinton instead to get strangled. And Kate Blanchett goes abort and hits the abort button, which is this awesome uh, security failsafe that opens all the doors after Hannah's um, emptied her pistol and all the cameras in the room that she's just leaving anyway. And it turns all of Kate Blanchett's uh, guards into retards. And Macaulay Culkin tricks them by dropping bricks on their heads and missing their hearts. And she tricks them by breaking out of this unlocked manhole cover in a gravel desert that some British tourists are at. And she meets a little girl who also talks really fast and is 10, but talks like an 11-year-old. If you know what I mean. I had to recontort that 
line like five times to accommodate dingus's sensibilities but anyway so the kid takes her pictures so she joins the family by stowing away on her bff's dad's humvees glockenspielensy so she goes to monaco but her ac's busted and her dad didn't teach her how showers work in the hotel room just how to shoot the submarine cameras so she has an episode like daredevil when he met the gardener and he runs to a pool Wait, that's Daredevil. She runs to a pool to escape the less chlorinated shower water, but instead of an alien from Battle L.A., it's got that little 10-year-old Sex in the City character, and she's all, you again, let's party. Your ill at easiness really meshes with my lovably superficial obliviousness. So they have some Turkish bugs for dinner, and she stows away again, but peeks through the trunk lid to watch them dance while the dad drives. And she goes, oh, yeah. Uh, meanwhile, Kate Blanchett dredges a body from the river like in that other Kate Blanchett movie, The Gift. But instead of Katie Holmes, it's another dude that we've never seen. So she knows that Keanu Reeves is lurking somewhere. So she goes to Grandma's house to kill her with a silencer, like in that um, wood carving of Amanda Seyfried. But Grandma's all, at least I'm at peace, knowing nothing and getting shot in the head. And Kate Blanchett's red shirts track Eric Banya into a subway station where nobody else is, but they trick him by, instead of shooting him, when they have him surrounded getting their asses kicked. And he's all, well, I guess they're on to us, but same plan. Feel good. Feel good about this. The title of this movie is probably Hannah's Dad. No worries. So Hannah tells her friend while they're making out in the van one night that there's something I should tell you could endanger you and your family's lives. I don't know all the details, but it's something to do with this gene pool fax that I stole from a restroom at this secret military facility located under that gravel pit that your family was at. And her friend goes, ah, friendship bracelet alert, and she ties a cherry stem with her tongue and wraps it around Hannah's wrist and goes, there, now we're BBBFFs, and you can also shoot arrows with it. And Hannah looks in the rearview mirror set in the blanket of the tent that they're camped on top of and sees the tranny's geo. And he waves at her and Hannah tells her rapscallion friend, I'll never forget you, whatever your name is. Don't worry, I'll distract them for a few seconds by running away and faking my drowning. Good luck with the interrogations. And the friend's all, what do you mean faking? But Hannah's already jumping through the window of the tent, and she tricks all the assassins by them splitting up and killing most of them. But the family and everyone who works at the A-Team cargo container docking Bay 94 in Monaco tricks them by getting interrogated. And Kate Blanchett's all, where is she? And they're all, uh, she jumped in the water? You were there, and then Eric Bonanza tricks Kate Blanchett's gun by taking 10 seconds to kick down her hotel room door while she tricks him back by not shooting him and then jumping out of the window with her magic slippers. And Hannah goes to Hans Christian Andersen's delicious asbestos-flavored gingerbread house where her dad told her to meet him. And a monkey dude lives in it, and he goes, Oh, your dad told me you really like waffles, so he gives her a raw egg. And she's all, yay, shell. And he's all, just like your mother. Oh, which reminds me. And he gives her a fake passport with no picture in it. And she goes, what's this? My dad never told me what a passport is. And he goes, this one's actually useless. But if you get one with a picture in it, you can make, you can fool computers with them. 
Although I guess you could have just made one of these with the computer. And she's all, I hate you. And he's all, just like your mom again, just like a monkey. Eh. And then uh, he's all, speaking of which, did you hear people outside tiptoeing across gingerbread? And she's all, oh yeah, I did tell a little girl I was coming here, but they won't figure that out till they interrogate her brother a couple seconds later. And he's all, good plan. And she's all, so should I just go kill them like I did every other time? They had me boxed in somewhere in Violet, like their underground fortress. And he's all, no, I'll just distract them. And, uh, you know, no worries. Wait, this is all boring. And then uh, she goes, okay, thanks for explaining how to use the internet. And he's all, wait, when did I? But then the gingerbread man's in on him and he's dead. And she stops off at Starbucks to download some stuff about genetics so she knows her own origins now. Or at least enough to get mad at her dad for giving her cryptic answers to stuff, even though that's kind of all like, oh, so dark. And she's all, wait, why is Kate Blanchett my arch enemy if she has a boss who reams her out for the hotel room thing? But Kate Blanchett kills the dad with a merry-go-round, and Hannah tricks Kate Blanchett, who has her outgunned because she's got the pistol and she's in heels, by running into a giant tunnel of love shaped like Carl Jung's skull. And she tricks Kate Blanchett by Kate Blanchett not shooting her. And Kate Blanchett slips on a Deus Ex Machina joist inside the Roller Coaster's Gesundheitsstrasse. And she looks down at Kate Blanchett and goes, something I said earlier to a deer you know nothing about, and shoots her in the pancreas. The end. All right, Kelly Wand. That's, uh, that's a, lot of, uh, a lot of detail in that one. It was a very detailed uh, synopsis. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. What? <laughs> you, I think you covered a lot. <laughs> well, because the Your Highness one was kind of short and lame, so I go, if it's long and lame, maybe that's what uh, I, I mean, it was no sucker punch synopsis by the way i don't remember uh, that one. Oh come on that was a great piece of work no you don't the, remember the sucker punch synopsis i thought you sucker punched the sucker punch synopsis can't believe you don't remember that wait am i am i remembering the wrong one i have a theory you don't like synopses a source code was kind of an okay one but i think you don't like synopses where you like the movie no no i love synopses <laughs> uh whether i like the movie or not the sucker punch synopses mm-hmm. you don't remember because you cut it short because the movie didn't. Oh yeah, yeah. No, that was good. That was brilliant. Uh, so, uh, all right, let's let's get down to brass tacks. How much for the ape? Mm. <laughs> that was my pleasure. fear and loathing in Las Vegas quote. That's that's all I got from that. Uh, all right, so See, that's uh, not better than my synopsis. <laughs> it's a lot shorter, but uh, you know, Hunter S. Thompson wrote that. Uh, so uh, let's talk about who liked it and who didn't, Kelly Wand. Uh, what is your wager this week? Well, you guys both liked it. I probably liked it least, so I wager that. I wager I liked it least. But I did like it. All right. I did like so, it. But I would. I think you liked it more than I did. So, Dingus, is he right? Uh, that he liked it least? <laughs> Meet the gardener. <clears throat> Uh, if, if he's right that we loved it, uh, I'm going to say yes. So, Kelly Wand, you are the coolest on it. Why are you cooler on it than I suspect Dingus and I are? Uh, I loved it until I got oh, – here's the thing. I got – I liked it until like the last 15 or 20 minutes, and then everything I thought was going to happen happened at that mm-hmm. point. And up till then, it was like a lot of – 
I don't know, it was spinning around a lot, and it was also trying to be evocative of a Grimm's fairy tale overtly, and a lot of those fairy tales have bleak endings, and I think I would have wanted that. And I was also conscious of the PG-13 rating. I missed those frames. Wait a minute. Hold on. You would say Hannah did not have a bleak ending? Uh, not as, Maybe it didn't seem as bleak as it, as it was to me because it was predictable. Predictable and bleak, I would say, are very different. But, I mean, come on. What, what, Hannah has lost every. I you mean, know she's what? basically lost in the woods by the, at, at the end of the movie. She has, uh, I mean, she's basically been thrown into the deep end of the, the civilization pool. Uh, but she's also accomplished the one thing in life she's been dying to do and been trained and taught to do. Like, what happens after that is, like, you're saying she's in the deep end, but we don't know that. Like, maybe it's... Uh, okay, well, hold that thought, because I, I have a theory about her. You, you say that's sort of the one thing she's been taught to do, but I, I think the movie does a little bit of cool jujitsu about that. So, so hold that thought. Uh, let's go over uh, to Dingus. So, uh, Dingus, uh, did this remind you of any other movies that, that I think you and I like? Uh, I think you know that it did. And I, I almost I, wanted to give Kelly Wand a copy of this uh, movie to send him home with, hoping that he would see it before we uh, we talked. What movie did it remind you of? Well, that's what I was. You know, I, I I watched it the other night, and that's what I was talking about when I said I, I wish we could do a podcast for a five year old movie. Ah, okay, it's five years old. Come on, what? I know, I know. No, but, well, that was like two years ago. No. <laughs> But uh, yeah. but the fairy tale aspects, yep. yeah, it's it's right there. Hostile so, too. Right there. No, it's a Paul Walker movie we're talking about, Kelly. Oh Wong. God. <laughs> Why uh, I ask? And Kelly, God, gosh, Kelly, if you could watch this movie, I just watched it the other night, and uh, oh my God, it is it is so, it is such a it, it has so much in there, um, and it's rated R, so I think it would be right up your alley. Uh, such a good companion piece as far as a film about um about parenting i mean i don't know about parenting against the backdrop of childhood as a fairy tale as a a twisted contemporary fairy tale uh and and uh, however i think kelly wan would hate i I think running scared kind of pulls its punch in the end in the the, in a way that hannah doesn't so i think kelly wan might hate the end of running scared even more Oh, you know, you're, you know, you're right. Uh, I always get surprised at that very, you know, no matter how many times I've seen Running Scared, I always think the end is going to be something else. And then I'm surprised and disappointed a little bit. Although, you know, there's that schmaltzy part of me that's kind of happy, but still a little disappointed. It kind of earns it, but it's still it's still not where. And I, I think Hannah is much truer to itself in terms of uh, an end point that ties into a beginning point and uh, traces a character arc. Like uh, I think Hannah. Also, I would say, although I love Running Scared, I think it really suffers from a few uh, one weak link. Uh, the, the the kid who plays Paul Walker's son is just so out of place and he's not an actor and uh, I kind of hate that he's in the movie. I feel sorry for the poor kid. But to me, Hannah doesn't have any of those weak links, though. No. Uh, All right, let me say this, then. Okay. Uh, You say it's as bleak an ending as it could be. What if Uh Hannah dies? There's your bleak ending. Kate Blanchett wins the end. There's your Grimm's fairy tale. Okay, it depends on... Sure, it depends on what you think Hannah is ultimately about. Right, um, right. Right. So let let me float this out there. Uh, 
I don't think Hannah is so I, I think the big fake out with Hannah and part of why I love this movie and I, I'm just going to go ahead and say it. This is I, this is absolutely going to be on my year end list. It's the best thing I've seen all year. I don't think I've seen anything that just jazzed me up as much as Hannah did. I, I'm such a sucker for father daughter stories. I, I love the style that Joe Wright brings to this. I think the script is ingenious. Uh, and the second time I saw it, there were so many little bits that I mined from it. So, so here's what I want to throw at you, Kelly Wand. You say, what if Hannah dies? Wouldn't that have been even more bleak? I, I think the point of Hannah isn't so much, it's not just about what happens to Hannah. The point of Hannah, as you're watching it, is it, it sort of presents itself as a revenge story. Here is a man raising his daughter and his wife and her mother has been murdered, so he's going to get revenge. You know, it's a classic story, very much like a born uh, supremacy, the second one. Uh, it's it's a revenge story. So he's trained his daughter to get revenge on the woman who killed her mother and his wife. But what Hannah does is it tricks us, and it very subtly reveals that this is not a revenge story. Right. This is a story about a father trying to make the world safe for his daughter. This is a story about what Eric Bana decided 17 years ago and how he finally has to let her go and do everything he can to make the world safe for her. Um, and in a way, he kind of succeeds, but he sacrifices himself to do it. He's not able to reassure her. You know, he he does. There's all of this conflicting information. You know, she finds out she's basically adopted, quote unquote. And all this nonsense about a super soldier, I think, is all sort of super text for an adopted child, you know, a, the, a child struggling with her identity. You know, she finds out she's adopted. So I, I think it's very bleak in terms of how it ends for him. Uh, and I think that's the, the big twist and the reveal and a central point of, of Hannah. Well, that's good. And I, I like that. And I, I agree with it. And I think he also sacrifices her, too. So it is, so it is bleak. Yeah. Um, and the storytelling craft is amazing. Like, I think that's the thing, too, is like the, the first hour is so good. I think at the end, I felt like it was like Evil Dead 2, where like the last, it's like, when, like, did the family die? Oh, absolutely. Okay. I, thought, I, mean, I would I, say, is there, I, I, I don't think there's any internal support in the movie for thinking the family didn't die. Yeah. Dingus, are you with us on that one? Oh, yeah. And that's one of my favorite things about the yeah. film is that you go through that interrogation scene and you know they're dead and it doesn't bother to show you. And I don't think there's any ambiguity about that. I think that everything that Kate Blanchett, everything that's going on in her face tells you they're gone. Except the kid's lack of terror. What? Kid? But I guess the, that's the little it. boy. Yeah, I thought the little boy would have been more scared. That's what I loved about that interrogation scene, though, by the way. The way it was cut together, the way Kate Blanchett mm -hmm. acted it, uh, she had a – and, and it, it was so true to this character she'd built. Uh, another central theme of Hannah – let me just mention this, and we'll talk about that interrogation scene – is is these is, – there are two women struggling to find their identities. You know, Hannah as a young girl coming of age, this whole idea of, of her entering the world. Who am I? Who's my father? Uh, you know, when Grimm tells her, you don't need a piece of paper to tell you who you are. And then he dies. I mean, it's her struggling to find her identity. Who is she? Where does she belong in the world? And on the other hand, we have Kate Blanchett, who has obviously regret some of the decisions she's made. 
and has has never really achieved her own identity. You know, the, she can't even talk the same way to different people because and she's parlayed that into a, a lifestyle, a choice. You know, she has different accents throughout the movie. And I think it's it, it's that that's that's a really brave choice because you could watch this and you could think. Man, Kate Blanchett can't do an accent to save her life. She's so inconsistent. But I think it's such a fantastic character choice. And the irony at the end, when you discover that she has a monogrammed pistol, you know, that she <laughs> yeah. puts Insecure. her initials yeah. on her pistol. Yeah. What it says about her as, as, a, as a villain, this wicked witch, you know, a big bad wolf. Kelly Wan, you mentioned her thing with her, her gleaming teeth. That was just such a great detail. Yeah. You know, this, this movie is about two people struggling to find their identities. So I love how that how she shows us in that interrogation scene how this has gotten her through her career, through the choices she's made. You know, this is how she gets to be in the CIA and still run around and try to assassinate people outside of the approval of the CIA. The way she comes to each different family member in a different way and the way it's cut together to seem kind of confused about who she's talking to now. You know, she's totally in control, but we as the audience, I think, are just as taken aback as the family members must have been. Uh, so I, I, yeah, so I love that interrogation scene. And the fact that the little boy wasn't terrified, that was her secret. You know, she didn't waterboard him. Uh, what was that, that horrible, uh, Sylvester, the, uh, that Sylvester Stallone, Jason Statham thing, you know, for Pete's sake, the explorers. No, what was that called? Expendables. Expendables. Yes. So uh -huh. the, the, the bad guys waterboard somebody there because that's the evilest thing you can do these days. But no, that doesn't, torture doesn't work. And Kate Blanchett knows it. And instead she just parlays this lack of identity to get it from the, to get the information from the weakest family member. So of course he's not terrified. That's exactly how she sells it. And there's a beautiful facial expression moment in that scene where she realizes she's got him and she gets this look on her face mm -hmm. that's like she's going to eat that little boy i mean it yeah. is every bit it, it is so big bad wolf wicked witch i mean the way this light comes in her eyes and she smiles and looks at him it's it's absolutely ghastly uh, i loved that about the interrogation it reminded me of that part in arlington road where joan cusack does the smile? Do you remember that movie at all? I do, sure. Yeah. Remember the part where Joan Cusack tracks down, um, what's her name? Who's the chick from uh, Laura uh, Hope Davis? Hope Davis. Uh, Laura Linney. Hope Davis. Yeah. Yeah, it's like the Hope Davis. I'm totally ruining Arlington Road. Which isn't <laughs> like that great? Tom didn't know which one. <laughs> remember Joan Cusack tracks down Hope Davis in a in, in Hope Davis is at a payphone in a parking lot in broad daylight, but the and it, the it scene just ends with Judy Davis. No, Judy. Sorry. Joan Cusack, like, she goes, what are you doing here, shopping? And then, what are you doing here? And the, and she knows she's, or Hope Davis knows Joan Cusack's evil by that point. And she just goes shopping, and then, like, it just holds on her smile for, like, ten seconds too long. Do you remember yeah. that part? All right, I, I, yeah. <laughs> and, and this is, you know, I this is the same kind of thing where we, right, right, the audience, right. see, uh, you know, this, this something coming over her face. Yeah. Facial yeah. doom. Yeah. Okay, it's a great else? performance. I, you know what it is? It's like Kate Bunch was such an awesome character in Hannah. I think I was disappointed in their showdown at the end. Like it was so perfunctory after the, oh, like, oh, what's going to happen when they finally, they're face to face. Now, why do you say perfunctory? Because again, it's so, quick. Okay. Uh, I thought she threw the fight. I thought Kate Blanchett. Um, well, you realize this is another fascinating thing. She did not want to kill Hannah. See, here's another thing that I, I think is, is the case, is that she – and she explicitly, by the way, tells Tom Hollander, don't kill the girl. Just find her. 
I think that this is, and, and this is part of what I love about this movie, is that Kate Blanchett as a villain, we have to infer things about what she's doing and why she's doing it. We are not, there's no monologue. There, there is no exposition. There is no backstory. Uh, you know, the, the closest thing we're going to get to a backstory is that fantastic scene where she guns down the car. And I love the way that was shot because we saw what she saw. You know, we did not get a cool car wreck sequence because that's not what she was looking at. You know, we or what she was hearing for especially I love what she heard. And the, the sound design in this movie, by the way, I want to talk yeah. about that separately. It's just a, amazing sound design. Um, but one of the things I was fascinated about is how little we know about Kate Blanchett's character and why she's doing what she's doing and even what she is doing. So, so my theory, it seems to me that she has latched on this idea of, of wanting a daughter. You know, when she confronts Hannah's grandmother and Hannah's grandmother says, you know, did you ever have children? That, I think, is where she is the most undone in this movie. That's, that's her weakest point in the movie until she goes down the slide uh, when she has that reaction where where she realizes this woman has sort of said, you, you don't have children. And I think there's just a lot of regret with this character. And she gets fixated on Hannah. And I think she wants to, to bring her in and kind of adopt somehow the role that Eric Bana had, whether it's bringing Hannah into the agency or going rogue or whatever. I don't think she wants to kill Hannah. Uh, and, and she easily could have, you're right, but she doesn't, you know, she gets the gun on Hannah and she says, I just want to talk. And what infuriates her is when Hannah is going to walk away and doesn't want anything to do with mm-hmm. it. And she, gets and she even talks to her like a parent. Right, yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Calling her young lady. Uh, so I, my theory is that I, I, I think part of what we can infer about Kate Blanchett is she never wants to kill Hannah. You know, when Tom Hollander says to her, because Tom Hollander, Eric Bana, and Kate Blanchett, these characters had all worked together in this program. And so when Tom Hollander says to Kate Blanchett, did she turn out like you expected? We know there's something going on there where she had expectations either for the program or maybe this specific child. And Tom Hollander knows that about her. Uh, so I don't think it was a simple matter, just like it's not a simple matter of Eric Bana wanting to to get revenge. I don't think it's a simple matter of Marissa Vigler wanting to just tie up loose ends and kill Hannah. I think there's more to it than that. Sure. Um, but I I don't think so, it came across the way it was shown, like if she, what her game plan was. Then. Like you're, are you saying she didn't I agree have- with you. We definitely don't know. We, we are not real clear. It doesn't really spell out what she wants. Uh, so I do agree with you there. Like that ambivalence. I, and I love what you said. Um, I don't know if that like it was too subtle for me. I mean, I'm, I guess most things. Well, don't are. you think it's a reveal, though, that she does not shoot Hannah? It is when she says the line. But I mean, what she I mean, did she really have no did she have no plan up until that second? Like this is a chick who got the drop on Eric Banyu has been set up as a badass. And I love that hotel room fight, mm-hmm. despite all my chicanery earlier. But it's just she seems so much at a loss in that scene, but not. Um, <laughs> I don't know. Is that, you know what? It, in a way, that, rem- that, works for you? That, that sort of sense, I, I agree with you. She's kind of at a loss. She doesn't know how to react. There's this sense of. She's been outmatched by everything in the same way that Eric Bana has this sort of resigned answer when she says to him, why now? You know, why have you come out this late? And he just kind of says, kids, they they grow up. You know, they're both of these characters in a way are at the mercy of the the force of a child growing up. Uh, So and and that's no theory. 
Uh, so, so Dingus, get in here. So, uh, you, uh, so, to, you, I assume, didn't see any trailers, right? You're like me; you went in completely blind, <laughs> right? Uh, did you wonder, like, did you even know the setting when when it started? Like, like time of, like, what what time period it took place in? Uh, I had no idea. Uh, the only thing I knew, because you know, when when you're sitting in a movie theater, you have you know, 2.3 seconds to close your eyes if you don't watch trailers. And so the only thing I knew was that it was going to be snow and somebody was going to say you're dead. Because mm-hmm. that, that's what I heard over and over again when I tried to block the trailer. So I had no idea. I had no idea who any of these people were uh, or what this was going to be about. And did, because I, I actually went through a thing as I was watching it where I thought, oh, this is like ancient times. <laughs> and then, and then uh, when the her, you know the gun they show them shooting is like an old Luger, and I was like, oh, is this like is this a World War II thing? Are they going to be saboteurs? Uh, so I I love how little information there was and how it, it it takes a while kind of revealing its hand about where this is, what time this is, and and who these people are. Uh, no, when that tra- when that plane flies over, hmm? um, and I, I I get Kelly's joke about it earlier, but when, but her. Her scream, her her that that yell she gives is one of my. I love that moment. I mean, it, it reminds me of a of a moment where uh, Andrew Garfield yells out in, in "Never Let Me Go," but it's, it's a completely different moment. I just I just love that moment of where she just it's just she's just yelling out when that plane flies over, and it was just such a surprise for me. When Andrew Garfield yells in what? I didn't hear what you said. Never let me go. Never let me go. It's a movie. It's just when it, when an actor just 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 yells in this primal way. And 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 sometimes that yell can seem totally artificial. And in this moment, I just loved it. I just loved her. She just screamed, and it was just such an emotional, uh, emotionally resonant moment. You know, for for me, uh, you know, um, just you know, Tom. One of the things that you talked about earlier. you were talking about how this isn't necessarily a, a revenge story, but about a, a father trying to make the world safe for his daughter. And for, for me, I, I would like to even go beyond that and say that even beyond that, for me, watching this, I just, I just got the feeling that this is a fairy tale about parenting, that, the, that this is about um, raising a kid and letting her go. And there are so many things that happen in this that, that are a heightened version of that, but it just especially given the, the things that are going on in my life right now, uh, raising a kid, it just, it just really felt like all those things that parents fear to a heightened level. And, and all of those things sort of stepped through in many moments in this film, including the fight they eventually have in the grandmother's house. Yes. Uh, there, there's so much about this. That's just about a parent raising a kid and letting her go, but stepped up to the nth degree put in a super spy movie exactly i mean yeah. that the the fight that they have you know the the actual combat they have in the grandmother's house uh is it could very easily be absurd or ridiculous it could be like that the scene and they live with roddy rowdy piper you know it's like wait a minute you're having the right. two characters like smack on each other that's a little silly but again just as as this heightened sense of you know the 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 father dealing with the daughter's resentment uh i just thought that worked so well and in a way 
you know, their conversation there was kind of, for me, the climax of the movie. You know, Kelly Wan, you mentioned the, the showdown with uh, Marissa Vigler being perfunctory. And I guess I kind of agree because the the real heart, I think, where the movie is really leading to is that fight and that conversation that that ends prematurely with him having to turn to her and say, run. Uh, yeah. And and that's why that moment at the end where he says kids grow up is isn't sort of a sigh, but is the point. I mean, that's yeah. that's yeah. that's why everything happens. I mean, I I spent a little time thinking about uh, this aspect of the movie and even the transponder doesn't really make any sense unless you think about it in the context of what I'm saying. I mean, the tr- the transponder that she sets off is is sort of just in a sense a, a symbol of of adolescence in a yep. way i mean yeah. it, it, you wouldn't need that it, it, in if this were a conventional let's go through the paces revenge then the two of them can just go off into the world and kill marissa Vigler when she least expects it but that's not what they do uh, he says you set this off because you're ready to go out into the world and i think that's a symbol of the fact that she's ready to go off in the world. It's, it's like hormones. Mm-hmm. I mean, she's setting that off, but it, it's just going to happen regardless. And the world's going to come crashing in and all of the dangers of the world are going to attack his little girl. And he's done everything he can to prepare her. And he'll swoop in at some point to try to help again, but there's only so much he can do. And he just has to trust that he's done everything he can to prepare her for the world. And these are sort of the parents' ultimate fears. I mean, how are we going to protect our children? How are we going to prepare them? I want to be able to swoop in at any moment. But at some point, you just have to realize uh, it's going to be over for me. And i got to hope that I did my best. Right. Yeah. And, that's, and that's what I love about this film. It just it made me uh, – I, mean, I hate to get too personal here, but that, that day – uh, that morning, my wife and I had this long discussion about about drawing up wills and deciding what are we going to do if something happens to the two of us and what's going to happen to our little six-year-old and, and who do we entrust him with and what are we going to do? And it was just this awful but necessary knockdown, drag-out discussion about being parents that you have to have when you realize, you know, I'm mortal. What am I going to do for my kid if I'm not here anymore? <laughs> and then going to see this that night with you too. Mm-hmm which was such a, a precious moment for me because I like the two of you, but it, it just was so, it was so powerful emotionally for me because it fit so well with so many fears that I have as a parent and so many concerns I have. And that's, I, I love the way this script is written. It's so well put together from that point of view. It does kind of have a lot in common with Beautiful when you describe it that way. Mm. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah, you're right. Uh, I... Just to clarify, I was exhilarated by this movie for like a long time. No, no, Kelly Wan, don't try so, to get on board the We Love Hannah bandwagon. No, you, no, I do. No, no, you're riding behind in the I thought Hannah was okay car. No, 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 no. <laughs> because I don't want you guys to think that all the things you're saying, which are really smart, escaped me. I just was like, oh, and then the payoff's going to be crazy. I don't know. Like, I, I, don't... I at, a, at a certain point, I caught up with the movie. Like, it was way ahead of me. Like, God, like the storytelling in the snow, like every shot matters. Like, it, it's like in, in film school, like this thing they said that always stayed with me, like a cinematographer guy said, like, what is a movie? It's like a story told with pictures. That's basically what it boils down to. And it's like, hey, that's what a comic book is. See, that's, what I was gonna, that's exactly where I was going to go. I was going to say, we had this awesome <laughs> argument about comic books right before we saw this movie. And you were like, comic books suck because the art <laughs> and the 
writing conflict with each other, like they distract <laughs> from each other. And I go, well, yeah, that's true. But they also, you can tell, you can get different effects with that. Mm-hmm. And you can get, you get like Hannah can, the thing that's awesome about Hannah, you bastard, <laughs> thinking I, this is proof that I love it, is it can only have existed as a movie. Like there's no other medium Hannah would work nearly as well as, as it does. Like it's, well, it was mm-hmm. meant to be. But I don't think the things I'm saying in, in particular are that smart, Kelly, as so much as emotional. And, and that's how I, that's how I experienced this movie. Uh, from, from the way the move, the music just overwhelmingly throbs to the way it, it's written and shot. It, it hit me on a, on a clearly emotional level. And I don't think I'm, I'm talking about brains at all no no and it was deliberately done that way like they had brains to hit you like that but you saying oh the transponder represents puberty like well yeah i don't think but i don't i don't think the dumbass would get that <laughs> the, the kid sitting behind tom and the first time he saw the movie probably <laughs> I literally one of the what? one of the first thing that the girl behind me said to her dad was uh when when uh uh, Eric Bana shows up and says, you're dead. She leans. She didn't even lean over. She almost said full voice. Is that her dad? Uh, <laughs> like, Jesus, the, the movie just started. How, first of all, how would your father know? He's seen the same thing you're seeing. Uh, <laughs> Tommy, you, you got to let that little girl go. <laughs> She's your Hannah. I mean, there, I really was like, as the movie was going on, I was so, and I, I finally turned around. I said, excuse me, would you please not talk to after the, the movie's oh, yeah. over? And I felt awful being that jerk, but as the movie was going on, I was like, good for that dude for bringing his, his daughters to see this awesome movie yeah. about, you know, a, a woman finding her uh, – two different women finding their identities. And uh, so I, I was proud of him, but uh, yeah. They, it went over their heads. <laughs> they were, I don't think they understood that the transponder was a metaphor for puberty. I'm not Who's sure they got grim? that. Well, grim fairy tales? <laughs> Is that Harry Potter? <laughs> Yeah, so now I feel like an asshole because it's like Battle L.A. is like there's no reason to see that movie ever. Like it's, I regret. I, I'm angry still. Like at the hour and a half wasted, and Hannah is like so worth anyone's time. I just want to. Well, now, so why did you say, "God damn it, Tom"? As soon as uh, the title card, the final... because you were not allowed to talk about the movie. Oh, because you like had questions at that point. Well, and also caveats about the ending, but I already went over that. Okay, I see. God damn it, Tom, why didn't it why weren't the last ten minutes as genius as the other hour and ten minutes? I still I still think they were. I mean I, I really feel that Hannah is just such a, a well crafted package all the it way is. at the end. I mean the her it's sliding weird. down that slide is such an ignoble end. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's so like awkward and you feel like bad for her. Like really? That's how you're gonna kill off the villain. It's not this cool like uh Hans Gruber falling in slow motion out of the Nakatomi Plaza thing. You know, she's stuff. like she's like sliding down the, the thing and hitting her head and getting her cool dress mm-hmm. dirty and slipping. It, it, yeah, and uh it, it's it's I just thought to the very last moment. I mean, let's talk about that line. What do you guys make of the first and last lines? I thought it was either the best last line ever or the worst (laughs) last line ever. I couldn't decide. It was the best of lines. It was the worst. Right. Yeah. (laughs) Well, uh, Tom, what do you you think? I want to hear what you think in particular. Just... For once, you go first. Go ahead. Oh well, I I loved it. I mean, I I thought it 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 was a it was a and I can't use this word anymore because of freaking Zack Snyder. But it was a sucker punch on par with a serious man. You know, it knocked the wind out of my sails the same way that the ending of a serious man did. 
uh, because there's so much to it. First of all, tying back to when she first says, I just missed your heart to the, the reindeer that, that she's killed. Uh, just as you know, this is, you know, she's used to killing things. She's okay with that. But also for the sort of poignance of it. Like she just came that close to humanizing Mm-hmm. Kate Blanchett, you know, whatever Kate Blanchett's preoccupation was with her, it was this burlesque of the maternal instinct. You know, she came so close to humanizing and making Kate Blanchett a, a motherly figure. There was something there and it got perverted or twisted. You know, she just missed it. Uh, so on a level of that's what the character would say on a level of that's a point the movie wants to make mm-hmm. on a level of it is now tying back to the way the movie opened. And I did not see that coming uh, just on all of those levels. I loved that line. And I thought it was a, a kind of a brave bit of writing uh, and, and the way Joe Wright slaps up her name, you know, in that almost <laughs> childish scrawl uh, was with a gunshot both times mm-hmm. was just so fantastic. Uh, so I, I loved it. I, uh, and that's going to be the answer, I think, to most things you ask me about, Hannah, I'm afraid. Uh, well, so. let me ask this instead. Uh-huh. Um, do either of you, and, and starting with you, Tom, since you're talking now, do you have any fourth wall things going on there? No. I mean, oh. Yeah, I, don't, I didn't really get as far as, like, addressing the audience. For, yeah, Breaking exactly. the fourth wall like that. And, uh, I don't – no, you're, you're going to have to run with that because I, I, don't, I don't see it. Well, and you, you neither, Kelly. Uh, I'm not sure what you mean. You mean the credit, like just her name coming up? No, I mean. Or you mean the, her saying it because it's an awesome movie line and the real person? Well, everything's so. But it's one of those movies where styles sort of the point. I, mean, I said that wrong, but like, <laughs> it's not supposed to be realistic. It's like it's evocative of fairy tale. Well, but we've talked about fourth wall stuff before, where, where an actor addresses or looks directly at the audience. I think that's what Dingus is, is getting at. Right. Right. Dingus, this idea. Absol- that, absolutely. Right. So. So what explain to us what I think you I think you're about to say something that's smart instead of emotional. I'm looking forward to it. Oh, boy, I, I don't I don't <laughs> think so. I just got the sense the, the for the very first line when she says, I just missed your heart, that it was said directly to us that yeah. that that they part of it might be just the style of shooting. Mm-hmm. Um, incidentally, I, I love the way this film is shot. There's this, there's a couple of these moments where there's this blurry vision kind of thing going on where you can really see that, that this guy, um, Alvin Kuchler, 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 who, who shot sun, who shot sunshine. You, you see some of that same sort of blurriness, but he but did the when, Danny Boyle sunshine. Yeah. Wow. Um, wow. And code forty six too. Anyway, that's the Michael Richterbottom thing. Very nice. But it feels like in that first moment that what I what I thought when she after she when she looks and she says, "I just missed your heart." It felt like it was directed to us, and I and and I thought, "Is that what's going on?" And then I just dismissed it. I said, "No, no, no. I'll just uh, get get rid of that." Now that you mention it and you just explicate all that, I actually do remember thinking that. I know it sounds and bad. then we get to that moment at the end, and it feels like there's that happening too. I don't know what it means, or if it means anything, or it's just me just putting on what I think about the movie. But it didn't really mean that to you guys. But it just felt like that—that that was her talking to us. I just missed your heart. Mm-hmm. I thought it was deliberate, and I wasn't quite sure what it meant. But I thought you could be read several different ways, all of which were cool. But what, the way I took it was, she is saying it to us, and she's saying, um. This is bleak, Kelly Wan, so I just... 
is, is almost a heartful schmaltzy movie because it's a coming of age story. But now, if you think about it, it's uh, it's not hard. It's a coming of age story in which two policemen, many, many military personnel and a, a lovable family have been killed. Yes. <laughs> so. Right. That's what she's saying with that line to us, the audience. Oh, by the way, my name's Hannah. Boom. <laughs> <laughs> but I was a little bummed that that daughter died because I really liked that character. Let's she talk actors so then. Yeah. Day. So her, her and name writers. Is... You said the screenwriters too. First time screenwriter. First time screenwriter. Seth Lockhead. I think. I think is how you. Seth. Did I get that right, Dingus? Is it Seth? Yeah. Seth Lockhead and David Farr. So yeah, it was Seth Lockhead's story and script. Uh, and David Farr. I think just I read a little bit about this. I think came on board later. But uh, Seth Lockhead. I think workshopped it somewhere and it got fast. It got picked up and. Uh, I, I think uh, the guy who did Children of Men, Quaron, Qu- uh, what the heck's his name? Quaron, Alfonso Quaron. Alfonso Quaron, yeah. I think he was attached at one point. Um, there was someone else who was really exciting that was attached. Uh, but anyway, it ended up with, with Joe Wright. But uh, so yeah, let's talk. Let's talk writers. Let's talk actors. So the girl who played Sophie, I agree with you, Kelly Wan. She was fantastic. She could have uh-huh. just been like a clown part, but she had so much just like heart and presence. Yeah. Uh, her, the actress's name is, is Jessica Barden. Barden. Um, and, and one of my favorite moments with her are the scene. And again, this, she, it could have been played like a clown, like a little comic relief, but the scene where, uh, Hannah is, uh, in, I think they're still in Morocco and she's having dinner with them. And Olivia Williams says, uh, you know, what about your parents and Hannah? What about your mother? And Hannah says she's dead. And she says, Oh, what did she die of? And her, no, no, maybe it, anyway. I think it's Jason Fleming says, "What did she die of?" And Hannah says, three bullets." And mm-hmm. Sophie uh, has this look like, "Are you serious?" And then, "Nice one, Dad." Like she's not quite sure what to make of Hannah, and then she believes her, but it's not like a played like a joke. It was just this really great, genuine moment of 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 surprise and an appropriate teenage girl response. Uh, it's my face. Take it or leave it. Leave it. Oh, oh yeah, right, right. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know that girl was born in 1992? Ugh, I don't so want to know that. 21? Wait, which girl? Wait, did I do my math wrong? 92. No, what, what are you telling us, Dingus? That's too much math. She just looked like she was 12. I mean, oh, oh, okay. Wait, the daughter of the family was born in 92? Yeah. No. Jessica Bardem, yeah. She looked way younger. You're right. I know. Wow. I know. I just, I loved her. I She's thought she was great. young. Yeah. And you know what was cool for me? There's ah, there's a great moment for me after um, after Hannah has has emerged in out of the facility onto the set of uh, the way back, and she's stumbling through the desert, and uh, and then there's uh, Sophie standing on this rock, mm-hmm. and she gives this speech about uh, MIA, <laughs> yeah. and. And at first, I could, I, my brain couldn't quite get around what she was talking about. I didn't realize Neither she was Hannah. talking about. Well, I couldn't. I didn't realize she was talking about the singer. I thought she was this other part of the program. Like she was saying, "Well, <laughs> MI8 was uh, was from Sri Lanka," and she's doing this whole thing. And, and I'm like, "Oh, so this is where we find out what the program is about." And this girl's another part of the program, and she's met all of these girls coming out of the desert. And then it just turns out she's a tourist. Yeah. <laughs> that's show. hannah's first exposure to the to civilization too <laughs> is that character she doesn't cool. speak english she's from sri lanka <laughs> it's so, so awesome yeah. i found her yeah yeah 
Uh, so let's talk a bit about the awesome scene. Now, now Kelly, one, you said something about the style was the point, and I want to get into that a little bit because there was a lot uh, of stylistic uh, stuff. One of the I, one of the uh, really stylized scenes was the un, the two girls under the cover. Uh, yes. Mm. That's a major was, scene. That's a major plot. What's going on there, Kelly Wand? Uh, well, what do you mean? You mean tell us what's major about that scene. Yeah, tell us about that scene. Uh, it's my punishment for cutting you off, isn't it? <laughs> well, no, no. I, I just wanted us to talk about some of the specific scenes that I loved. That was one of them. Uh, it's... Uh... Well, it's the closest Hannah ever get. Well, it's a lot of things. It's it's mm-hmm. the it's the the daughters. Well, they're both daughters, but it's the little girl. What's the Sophie? So Sophie's Sophie. the English girl, and, and Hannah said. is from Leipzig. Right, right. It's the first time where it's Hannah actually feels and acts like a an act, like a kid her own age, and um, they connect with each other. Like it's the first time where they have a real conversation, and it's also the last real conversation either of them is going to have. Like where the where Hannah's happy ever, mm-hmm. and it's also the little girl gives her the thing that she will wind up using to. That's actually a little confusing. That's not. Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry, I cut you off. No, no, no. Are you are you saying that's not what happened? No. So Hannah takes the arrow from Grim from Grim's body, and when she's running through the uh, the rundown amusement park, there's a brief shot of her taking some cord off of a tied up like a, a boat or roller coaster car or something so oh. i don't think she uses the the friendship bracelet to they should cut that the arrow hey uh. re-release the movie without that because i like <laughs> the idea i like my idea i you know what i wondered the same thing myself but the second time i noticed they very clearly put in an insert shot of her hands grabbing a rope ah uh, lame because if, if, if she uses the friendship bracelet, it means she's saying goodbye to that era and and young <laughs> it's like it's another level of like so long right childhood but you're right i mean the, uh it's notable in that this is her first connection with someone her own age with a with a, a woman a, a girl a female character yeah. uh it's y- you know it's ultimately her undoing it's although she does make the right call in trusting sophie by the way sophie does not betray that trust it's only because the boy overhears that she's eventually uh, found out um and it's also her first kiss she does right, not kiss yeah. that boy right. by the way well, I thought maybe she just rolled that way. But she doesn't know, you know. You know what? I would not be surprised if there was some subtext there. You know, a, a lot of this movie is about what what does a child who feels she's abnormal, how does she get along in the world? And I don't think it's explicit, but I think it's entirely possible that, that maybe there's this idea that, that Hannah could be a lesbian. You know, that there is – again, I don't want to press that too much, but it, it's worth noting she doesn't kiss the boy. She does kiss Sophie. That's her first kiss. She obviously feels close to Sophie. And that scene, by the way, is shot in okay. such a – I don't want to say sexual because they are young and it's not really like sexual like a love scene. In, in such a, uh, an, a sensuous way. Mm-hmm. I guess that's a better way to put it. Uh, you know, you see, and this is so adorable, you see like the little sunburned flecks of skin on Jessica Barden's nose. It mm-hmm. is so, that scene is shot so intimately. That's how Hannah will remember it. It'll be sure. idealized. And uh, also, I was just one last thing. She, girls are different though. So that Wait, scene. Wait, hold on. Let me write that. <laughs> yeah, I got to take notes. Hold on. <laughs> well, not I was going to say like, she's not necessarily a lesbian if they kiss. You know what? That's a, that's a fair point, but I, I just want to say that that uh, part of her finding her identity is this sort of sexual confusion, and that the movie does briefly touch on that with her kiss with the boy and whatever connection she has going with with Sophie might be part of that as well. Right. Uh, 
but yeah, you're right. I don't. There's definitely is not like a lesbian tractor or anything. I think it's the, they're both there, and that's one of the cool things about the movie is like there's a lot of different levels. It's working. Yes. Okay. Sorry, Angus. Sorry about that. Okay. That, that's okay. I just I just think this is her first time navigating an emotional relationship, uh, other than what she had with her father, which which wasn't an emotional relationship in the way that most of us understand it. I mean, in the same way that that his his view of responding to her of you know her question of what does music feel like is to read her definition <laughs> uh this is her first time navigating emotional waters and she's also she's just discovered music i mean the, one of the wonderful things about this movie is the way it introduces these things to her it, it's not just some some ridiculous uh radio thing going on there are little dribs and drabs you have the the i don't know how you say it but the moisin the guy the guy calling people to prayer you hear that music you hear the music on the television you hear the music of the gypsies so she's learning what these things are and this is her first emotional relationship that she's ever had to navigate and that's really difficult to do um for any person but especially for an adolescent and that scene under the blanket in that intimate way is just showing how difficult it is for her like you said tommy she was right to trust her but how does she figure that out? I mean, that's so difficult for anybody. And I love how the film lays that, that out and lets her navigate those waters. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, how cool a couple are Olivia Williams and Jason Fleming? <laughs> awesome. <laughs> What's she been in? She looked like Jack Oh, good Lord. Are you serious, Kelly Wand? I don't know. Oh, I'm so in love with her. She is so awesome. I'm more in love with her than Dingus, by the way. Dingus is going to try to claim. That well, I know you're really in love with Dingus. From, he, that he's going to try to claim that he likes her more from Rushmore. But oh, right. I'm an idiot. You are right. <laughs> Uh, and also, let's see, she was in Ghost Rider. Uh, what else has she done lately? She's uh, great in Ghost Rider. Oh, she, she really plays is. Nicolas Cage's girlfriend? Gotcha. Mm -hmm. uh, she plays the motorcycle, actually. So <laughs> <laughs> much fun we have. Uh, and I've always liked Jason Fleming. I mean, it's let's so see. nice to see that guy. He's uh, he, some Guy Ritchie movies, uh, pretty much any British movie. Wasn't he one of the thugs in PU-239, Dingus? As a matter of fact, if I'm not mistaken... He met an un an unforgettable end in PU two thirty nine. Wasn't that him? I don't even. I don't remember. I don't know what you're talking about. I don't want to spoil too much, but Jason Fleming is one of the bad guys in PU two thirty nine. And what happens to him at the end of that movie? I I'm surprised it's not seared into your brain, Dingus. Uh, oh, okay. It, so you may as well know the rest of the. Oh. <laughs> uh, but anyway, that, I, they were just so appealing and. I mean, what a great bit of casting all around as far as this is. And when she is watching them, you know, this would be like a schmaltzy sundancy moment in any other movie. But when she's hiding in the van, seeing them all dancing to that David Bowie song, and uh, it's just such a great cast. At that. I loved seeing them work together there. Uh, and especially getting, I mean, this it's such a great uh I don't know if you would call it a grace note, but letting each of those characters get that moment in the interrogation yeah. is, mm -hmm. is great. Getting to see how he reacts apart from his family after you've seen all you've seen is him react sort of to his wife. I mean, I really like getting He's trying to keep along. him alive in that scene. Whether he like, is he that? But they, he didn't seem terrified either. Or am I misremembering it? I don't, I don't think I any think of them were terrified. terrified. I mean, yeah, they, well, they, I, I, mm, I, I mean, they're all played so different. I mean, right. Marissa Vigler plays them all so differently. Uh, 
so I don't, I don't think they know they're about to die. I mean, he seems kind of beat down and uh, just kind of resigned to they're in trouble. Um, the daughter might know because – and also another cool thing about the scene you were talking about is that's the last scene before the daughter sees Hannah kill all those people and runs away from her. Actually, it's way earlier than that. Is uh, it? Yeah, because she hasn't she, – she started to ride in, in the van with them later uh, by the time that she realizes they're being followed. This is when she's a stowaway on the van. Uh, okay. Uh, I thought it was right after that scene that she – No, was. so the, what, what happens in the, uh, before the container park fight is you know they're, they're driving at night and Hannah knows they're being followed and Olivia Williams like, we have to pull over. I'm lost. And, and Hannah's desperate. You know, she knows at that point something's going to happen. And she makes a decision to basically leave them to save them. Uh, it, Does Olivia that, Williams represent uh, another type of mother? Oh, absolutely. Type? Okay. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, it's sort of the idealized family. You know, this is this is where Hannah sees what she's been missing, and I think it feeds into. And again, I love how the movie doesn't make it explicit, but you know, how much does this affect how angry she is at her father when she finds out? You know, this all this stuff about. I'm adopted, you know, you're not my real father. She's just seen that, and, and I think she's thinking that she that's what she's going to go back and have with Eric Bana, with her father. You know, this is how families are supposed to work. This is something else I've learned that I'm going to take back, you know, when I, when I meet up with my father again. Um, you know what ruined this movie for me? Firestarter, I'm thinking. Because then I go, oh, yeah, it's going to be the dad, the thing. The same outcome. <laughs> There's a little Firestarter here, yeah. You know, speaking of the mother, you know what movie she's going to be in next? Olivia Williams? Is that no, what? her actual mother, Johanna Zadek, I think is her name. Oh, the one who uh, has like one scene in the movie and then a picture on a wall? Right, right. I, I did not recognize her. Who was she, Dingus? I, I didn't recognize her either, but I looked her up, and she's going to be in a great movie you guys are both looking forward to called Anonymous. Yes, I was about to make it. Oh. <laughs> I love my Roland Emmerich. I think Roland Emmerich should have done Hannah. <laughs> Don't encourage him. Okay, let's talk about how awesome, and I love knowing how to say her name now. I mean, I didn't really bother myself with how to pronounce her name in Lovely Bones because the poor girl was just made such poor use of, and she just looked confused and almost like she was on a different shoot. And she was fine and way back, but a lot of that was her connection with Ed Harris. We talked about it. Oh, so finally, I'm like, okay, we got to know how to say her name, and we've all we've all practiced, I presume. It's Saoirse Ronan. Uh, how was she merely great or was she awesome? She's I want awesome. I just want to say that when I said her name at the beginning properly, it was because Tom prepared me for that. I just <laughs> we want to give you praise exist. for looking up how to say it, doing the research. I and did it. Finding well, it's out. funny. She's, I did not know this. She is, uh, I would, I'd assume she was Australian like all other actors. She's <laughs> racist. She's very, very Irish. And Saoirse is, is it's an Irish name. Uh, and I, I went, I just went onto the, the internet. So I don't know if you guys know you can do this. You can like Google Sayorice Ronan interview and oh. then just look for videos. And so I was clicking on these videos of interviews with her and it, it tended to be like international shows where the host would have an accent. And I couldn't trust that. I had to I had to click on several videos before I found an, an American person saying that word in English uh, and could understand. They're saying Sirsha. Uh, but Americans always mispronounce everything. So maybe that you saw yeah. the person mispronouncing. I'm pretty sure we we talk right. It's everyone else that has problems. Yeah. 
<laughs> so, I mean, come on, you get she was so good, right? I mean, just so expressive and and just in tune with what was happening, and uh, just so good with the other actors. I mean, this is the sort of thing where I watch this movie, and it's like I I am so glad that she's only I don't know what is she twenty because you know she's got another. 40-odd years of great performances ahead of her. I mean, this is just one of those performances where it's like so excited to see a young actor because now I just can't wait to see the other stuff she does. A, a facet of her awesomeness in this is that I didn't know she was in The Way Back, and in that she kind of plays like a sexually – like she's post-pubescent in that movie. Mm-hmm. Or she's seen that, and in this she seems so young. And it's just like all in body language now. Mm-hmm. She, she, she was older than I was expecting. Yeah, to, I, yeah. Actually. The movie um, does make her look. I, I don't know. Maybe it has something to do with when they shot. But seeing her now, I mean, I don't know. If she hit a growth spurt, or if there was just a weird makeup thing in the movie. But yeah, she's a lot older than I ex- expected as well. So you're, I'm bummed that she's not playing Katniss Everdeen in the Hunger Games movie, Tom, because Jennifer Lawrence is like a full-grown woman, and the whole idea is she'd be like a little kid. Like I, I, I think Saoirse Ronan looks old enough to be Jennifer Lawrence's sister. So what are you gonna do? The way that's how good the movie is. It's like it's shot like she looks smaller than she is. They play to it, and she looks like Kate Blanchett too, which was a lucky coincidence, I would think. I mean, Why is that cast. a lucky coincidence? Oh, well, just because, because they're both good actors. Oh, okay. <laughs> it, it favor. What do you mean? <laughs> no, no, I didn't know if you because I'm a little. I was a little unclear when I first saw it on some of the program stuff and what Kate Blanchett, as I mentioned, what her motivation was. And as I'm watching it, I'm thinking, is this, is she going to turn out to be her mother? Which clearly is not the case, but I I didn't know if you were somehow inferring. uh, No, no, but that's what makes it awesome. That's, uh, that's what makes it a lucky coincidence because they're not related, but they look alike and it is a mother daughter. And you know what, Kelly one, that's actually a fair point because what little I knew about this, I'm like Dingus, whereas I had seen this opening shot of this pale girl in the snow and then I closed my eyes so I didn't know anything else about it but then I heard that Kate Blanchett was in it and I somehow got it in my head that Kate Blanchett was playing a grown-up version of this girl so when I first saw uh-huh. Hannah I first saw Hannah and there's this awesome stuff in the woods with uh Saoirse Ronan and Eric Bana and I'm like oh rats she's gonna grow up and it's gonna be a Kate Blanchett movie in just a little bit <laughs> I felt like oh. oh I don't I don't want it to end and I was so elated when Kate Blanchett shows up and I'm like oh they're different characters so you're, you're very right Kelly Wand I, they do oh, I, I, the trailer did ruin the movie for me too heavily so oh, and trailers man yeah I, I so was happy I didn't see a trailer in this it was did so- you guys did you guys understand what the Witch is Dead postcard meant? Yeah, they've uh, yeah. done the job. They even there's a point in the cabin where uh, Eric Bana is is making her like among her drills, like saying I'm I'm from Leipzig, population zero point seven million. Uh, the the steps of things she has to do, mm-hmm. and one of the steps is postcard. Uh, so uh-huh. it's the postcard that she sends to him to with the secret message to say that she has met and killed Marissa Vigler. Plus. Marissa Vigler has the slippers, so it's Wizard of Oz. I didn't realize till really late. I mean, I understood, I kind of got what that postcard was going for, but then I dismissed it. I didn't realize till late that that um, Hannah was under the uh, misconception that she had already killed her. Yep. Yep. Uh, I I thought that she knew. Or I know, could no, hear she what was going on with the earpiece or something. So I didn't realize that she thought 
that she had already completed the mission. Not till yes, the phone call heightens it. Exactly. Know? Not till yeah. she hears the name when right. she's in Grimm's house and she's this hiding under the bed. And similarly, Eric Bana doesn't know until he uh, until that. And I want to talk about this that awesome subway fight scene where he picks up the right. walkie-talkie. Uh, so I think the movie is very deliberate about when characters know that she is or, or isn't dead. Uh, yeah, but I and I was with the characters. <laughs> I was <laughs> I was a little dense, and it was so so it was kind of a, an enjoyable reveal when when he picks up the the uh, the walkie-talkie for me, and and I went, oh, that's what they think. Oh, that's right. what she. Thinks. Right. And so I, it was. I don't know the opposite of dramatic irony. I'm not sure, but I I missed <laughs> uh, that that when she hugs that that decoy that she thinks that's what's happening, which is kind of dense on my part, but. The thing is, I could he- I could just sort of feel you squirming in the seat next to me during that scene where she breaks the decoy's neck, and <laughs> then the guards come in and get flipped, and she starts firing the gun at the cameras. I could just feel you. You almost were like like dancing with glee. It seems. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I, I was doing that a lot because. I really want to talk about music, but but first let me just real quick talk about nonverbal communication in this movie, mm-hmm. um, because there's a couple of moments here, and one's with the little boy, and and yes. another one is that moment at the locker where she looks at the scientist <laughs> yeah. and just nods her head, and he no gets time. in, and I think she kills him, doesn't she? I think yeah, so too. That's yeah. she shoots him through the you lock. know through the PG-13. You don't see that, but there's so many moments of just looks, and and I think I think. And I want to tie this back into what Tom started talking about with with Saoirse Ronan is that she is so incredibly expressive. Her eyes mm-hmm. do tell you everything. I mean, there's the, there are these shots in, during the raid that that opening raid at the cabin where you just see one of her eyes, and part of that is just the filmmaker being great, but part of it is she just she's a she's phenomenal. I mean, she just gets across so much. Uh, I love her eyes and I love how expressive she is. So that's a, this is a fantastic performance. And even the scene where she has to fool the decoy. I mean, she thinks it's Marissa Vigler, mm-hmm. a super agent, and she has to start crying to mm-hmm. get her guard down so she can, she can like get her arms and legs wrapped around her. Uh, uh, yeah. It seems like that was the plan. Like, the, you, you know, when she breaks down like that, I, I, you know, in the movie, you know, there's some other layer going on that you're not real clear on, but she's so good. You're like, oh, is, is she breaking down? They I give think. that away in the trailer. I'm really annoyed. Well, then don't watch the freaking trailer. I know. <laughs> so I, I can't be happier than when you talk about trailers that I don't. Watch. I know. That's why I tell you, like, this is precisely why I don't watch trailers, because <laughs> yeah. of, you know, you know what a precious ex- you can only see Hannah for the first time once. Uh, so, uh, yeah. But can you believe they gave that away in the trailer? Absolutely, I can believe it. That's, yeah. uh, what I, that's why I didn't want to see the movie. I was like annoyed. Like, fuck you guys. Well, those people have to sell the movie to people who don't. They don't have to do who need a reason. That? Well, they, oh. they, people need a reason to see movies. So, I, I mean, I feel for people who make trailers and marketing people. They have to figure out oh. how are we going to cut this together so right. we can get people who wouldn't, who are also going to see, you know, Scream Four. Uh, how can we get them to come see our movie? Well, that. That's a good example because no one went and saw Scream 4 and the trailers were really uh... – <laughs> but there's a million ways to do it. I, I totally disagree with you. There's a million ways to be – there's a million trailers I've seen. Dude, Star Wars. I mean Phantom Menace looked great from the trailer. <laughs> so something else I want to uh, mention about Saoirse Ronan, another movie this reminded me of, uh, and I think you guys will, will, will get this. Uh, you know, Kick-Ass had this whole idea where Nicolas Cage's wife was unjustly murdered. I 
think I'm vaguely recalling that. So he is training his daughter, basically sacrificing her childhood to make her hit girl so they can get revenge. So kick ass is this similar plot, but it's played much more superficially. And it's, you know, it's got this other sort of inconsequential movie wrapped around it. Um, and Chloe Morris is fantastic in Kick-Ass, but one of the things that I, I loved was how, you know, in Kick-Ass, they had to do a lot of, like, wire work and, and stringing Chloe Moritz up and have her flying through the air and doing all this implausible, crazy knife stuff, and it was very R-rated, and that was fine for, for that tone. But I loved how, even though it wasn't entirely convincing, it worked enough, I loved how there, were, there was no wire work with Hannah. They weren't having her fly through the air or look ridiculous. They were just doing some really tight, semi-plausible choreography uh, like in that container park scene you know she was jumping around on the container parks but when she actually got to tussling with the skinheads you know it was just regular punching it wasn't anything too crazy uh and and i you know and and they sort of introduced that where she kills the decoy this idea that she's kind of small but she's got to get the person in position to break her neck you know Mm -hmm. i i loved how that was set up Uh, i always like when people's body types determine the way they fight yep. like uh the kill bill chick and uh bruce lee so they use oh, it i like that you make that connection tom because uh i was at a kid's birthday party this weekend and there was another dad there asking me what i'd seen recently because he knows I, I do this thing this podcast thing and I, I told him i'd seen hannah and he said well what's it about and i'm always <laughs> reluctant to answer that question and so i sort of gave him just a little cursory and so like, well what happens at the end <laughs> what? what? Said, are you sure you are? And he's like, yeah, I, I might not see it. Just tell me everything that happens in the movie. I mean, he uh, just watch the trailer. You'll which I don't understand at all. And so I started talking to, you know, and, and he, then he brought up kick ass, which he really liked. And I said, well, there are some parallels. I mean, the tone is very different between the two movies, but I see what you're talking about. And, and so it was really enjoyable to talk about it with this guy, even though I felt awful about spoiling the movie for him, even though we didn't care. Um, but you're right about that whole father preparing a daughter for this type of thing. Although they're, I think there are wildly different reasons the fathers are preparing the daughters. Right, right. But well, you, that's, that's that, a really good parallel, I think. And that is the reveal. You know, Kickass stops at that that superficial point of a revenge story. Uh, you know, it doesn't explore what's going to happen to Hit Girl afterwards. You know, that's not really what Kickass is. is. Tom hates comic books. I I really do. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'll go on record for that. I asked my mom like. The exact same thing Dingus's dad asked him about Scream 4. Like, Snoop Campbell die? No. Do you have your cut? No. Are they the killers? No. Okay. Don't need to see it. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing interesting. Bunch of random shit happens. Also, how do you guys feel about the music? Loved it. God, I loved it's, it. it yeah. It's an important part of the movie, too. Like, she, it's definitely... You know, it's an important part of the movie, but in, in very specific, carefully applied ways. And I so respected that. You know, I love the Chemical Brothers. I love that kind of music. Um, I, I love how, in a way, it reminds me stuff like like the Chemical Brothers soundtrack for Hannah, the Daft Punk soundtrack for Tron. I think they kind of remind me of that crazy stuff that like Tangerine Dream and John Carpenter used yeah. to do for their movies, but with more of a beat. You know, something you can like dance to. You know, like this club music sort of energy behind it uh so i loved the soundtrack but i really loved even more how judiciously it was applied you know a lot of the uh audio progression of hannah is about her discovery of music you know initially her ideas of music are whale song and wind chimes made out of bones 
And, you know, she's obviously curious about it. That's a great little touch. And that's the movie's clue that music will evolve as the movie and the characters and the settings evolve. Mm -hmm. So the first thing she discovers are these these women, these mothers washing clothes on the banks of a river. You know, then she discovers the call to prayer. You know, uh, and I'm glad you mentioned that, Dingus, because I, you know, this is such a non-American movie, and I so love that about (laughs) it. Uh, You know, we don't get the, and when we finally do get the pop song, at least it's an obscure David Bowie song. Uh, You know, she she eventually discovers when she uh, when she goes to Spain, the flamenco singers, Dingus, you mentioned those gypsies. That was a beautiful scene, and again, the camera took so much time letting us see what she saw. And letting us see her reaction and letting Saoirse Ronan play that reaction. I mean, it so let her drive that scene. That scene was so much about her reaction uh, to hearing this music for the first time. And then she gets to Berlin. And when she comes out of the subway, there's this really weird scene where there's all these dissonant city sounds, like a siren. There's, for some random reason, and and Joe Wright, bless you for doing this. I don't know what you were thinking, but man, it was fantastic. For some random reason, there's a dude in a wheelchair sitting there doing these weird scales. Oh, yeah. It was like a David Lynch. But but if you consider the movie's sound progression mirroring the character's state of mind and the location this is where she's she's confused she has lost touch with this this idyllic family she found you know the world has suddenly become dissonant and doubtful she's mm-hmm. plunged into the, the this urban decay of germany and eventually this this uh, abandoned childhood fantasy land. Uh, you know, the music goes along with all of this. And then she gets to that fantastic, weird Tom Bombadil dude. And he, he plays for her that Grieg piece in the Hall of the Mountain King, which is about uh, Norwegian trolls. You know, it, it touches back. It, it goes back into folklore and fairy tales. You know, that famous bit of music from, uh, it's based on the, the play Peer Gint. Um, and he plays that for her. And I just love the, the musical progression. And talking about that, the Chemical Brothers never put themselves in the way as anything other than sound design or this great driving beat anytime like bad guys or someone like, like this sort of modern warfare <laughs> beat. Like when the when the troops first show up in the forest, it's almost like a weird electronic siren or, or, or something. Uh, and uh, of course, uh, Tom Hollander's weird little ditty that that whistle that that Isaac sings. It's almost like a weird fairy tale kind of thing. You know, that's part of the Chemical Brothers soundtrack. Um, and when she snaps into the fight scenes, that's where the beat comes in. Uh, so I I just I love the music and especially how it tied into the sound design. Uh, Eric Banya is is it Banner Banya? I believe just Banner. There's no Banner. Yeah. His <laughs> Didn't get any on you. Uh, his <laughs> definition of music at the beginning, like, also applies to movies. And I got that, like, when he said it. And I'm like, yeah, that's oh, that's clever. It's good writing. And then at the uh-huh. in the end credits, he says it again over the end credits. And then I thought the dingus in the fourth wall over spell. Over, over, over. <laughs> that's actually in the soundtrack, too, as well, as Eric Bana's 
uh, sort of halt. And I love the way he was not a natural reader. Like he was kind mm-hmm. of reading slowly and he stumbled when he got to the thing about the right. whale testicles. He wasn't quite sure he should be telling her. <laughs> Even though he's that. a master spy. who's Right. <laughs> he didn't. He didn't. The, the CIA didn't train him to uh, raise children. Uh, oh, what a great about, moment it is. I, I forget. What is he reading to her when she says, I know how it ends. I just wish you'd read it differently. About the dog being shot into space. The first dog oh, in space. Like a, I yeah. hate that story, too. I agree with her. It's like, yeah. I just love what that says about kids. Yeah, I just love that. It, I, just, I know, I know what the ending is. I just wish you'd read it differently. Yes, yes, yes. So beautiful, and the music. I, I can't get over. You know, I, I feel at first I felt a little hypocritical because sometimes I complain about how music is mixed in films, and this when when it comes in, it is overwhelming and perfect. But but Tom, you are absolutely right when you say judici- judicious because in when it's not there, it's not there, and it doesn't have to be, and they don't insinuate themselves. You know, there are, there are a couple films where I felt like, will you stop? Will you get we Hans Zimmer? Get out of here! Get out of the scene so I can hear these characters talking together. And when father and daughter are reading together, or when there's any sort of emotional scene going on, you don't have the soundtrack intruding. But when those guys are in the forest, or when she's running, it's pounding in this. Incredibly appropriate way, and I just I was crazy about the music in this. Yeah, the, the sound chem- design overall, the sound design is fantastic. Now, have the Chemical Brothers scored a movie before? I actually don't know the answer to that. No, I I always I, I always uh, in my head think they're the Dust Brothers, but they're not. Well, do you know the backstory of that? Don't you? No, they were. I mean, the, the so the Dust Brothers have been around longer. They're American dudes who you know they worked with the Beastie Boys and uh, I forget who else, but they've been pretty well established. So the Chemical Brothers are these English dudes who very intentionally patterned themselves after the Dust Brothers and actually called themselves the Dust Brothers when they played clubs. Uh, and it well, took legal action from the actual Dust Brothers to get them to change their name, and that's when they they became the Chemical Brothers. And it sounded a lot like the Fight Club soundtrack too. Right, right. Well, that's what I was thinking at the and end. That's and that's the Dust Brothers. Yeah. Oh, okay. When Chemical Brothers showed so you, up, I thought, oh, it's the fight. What? No. Right, right. <laughs> the the, un, the confusion is understandable and has actually been uh, w- and actually also legally actionable. <laughs> so, <laughs> now I feel less dumb. Thank you. <laughs> Why chemical? Why that word? You know what? I'm. I believe. Was it was it a play on my chemical romance? Like I, I think they might have been uh, riffing on. You know what? I'm not sure. I, I don't know enough about music to say for sure. Uh, but um, I am a Chemical Brothers fan. And I mean, do you do you guys know why you know the Chemical Brothers? Then I you know, don't. They, they do club music, and I think their biggest thing is that uh, I I'm not even going to try to sing it. That Block Rock and Beats song that gets used like in the Charlie's Angels movie. And do you know what I'm talking about? I'm not. Never mind. <laughs> I think I know what you're talking about. Yeah. Is that what it is? I think it's like, and time for another block rock and beat. You know, it's that you've heard it before. I guarantee if I were to play it, you'd go, oh, yeah, that's the Chemical Brothers. I haven't gone clubbing in weeks. <laughs> uh, Kelly, what did you think of the Tom Bombadil? Because you would play that part in the movie. Yeah. <laughs> Dingus would be the Eric Bana. Kelly, you would be the Tom Bombadil. And I guess I would be Jason Fleming. I'm not sure. You know what? I don't know. Uh, you get to be Tom Hollander. Are you kidding? Oh, okay. Yeah, I'll take that. Around in those little <laughs> with, your, with your droogs. You're the Moroccan hotelier. <laughs> that's great, Dingus. That they, they were kind of droogs, weren't they? Uh, yeah, yeah, that's what they – you know, and I've seen that recently. But And they, they – from the way he was – they were shot dancing on those containers during the interrogation. Ah, very good, Dingus. Yeah. 
totally very, reminds very me. good well and even the whistling you know what i didn't even think of that just like alex whistling uh singing in the rain and clockwork mm-hmm. orange you know isaac's whistling his little ditty wow good call thing dingus you're a you're a verifiable stanley kubrick authority now and he doesn't even think he's smart i know <laughs> he thinks he's an idiot just because i go now you guys did know uh kelly one i think you asked me but did did you i did not recognize until i looked up his name do you know why you know who tom hollander is uh i had no idea till afterward and i I, know actually i think i heard you whisper kelly uh in the loop and i i I had no idea and then uh, it's so dissonant to think of that because he's, right. he's so he's so bland and clueless and inoffensive in <laughs> in the loop. Uh, uh, yeah. yeah, now and, he's sinister. Well, there I I just love and and Dad Gummit. I wish more movies would trust the audience enough to do this. But I love how much go, is unsaid and is just passed in looks, like Dingus said before about mm-hmm. looks. You know that early encounter with Tom Hollander and Kate Blanchett, and you know there's baggage between them, mm-hmm. and the lines hint at it, but it's never explicit. But the way they interact, there's a connection, and the, their looks that they exchange, and uh, man, there's just there's just so much like like weight and information conveyed, uh, and yeah, I, I really love Tom Hollander and in the. That's why it's got to be a movie. You can't get that. That's the advantage of movie making. Yep. Yep. Yeah. The music's just there to support it. So Kelly Wand, it's a shame we're having a great time on the I Love Hannah bandwagon. It, it kind of sucks that you have to ride in that lonely little broken down car and, and tag along behind us. And the I thought Hannah was okay car. I'm, I'm really sorry that you're. When did I say that? <laughs> so hey, we brought uh, you around. Do you want to get on the Hannah is awesome bandwagon? I think we could squeeze one more up here. Charlie Brown was a lockhead. I don't get that. I should I I should have hit the the three by three music. Dead gummit. That's why I said it. I wouldn't say anything that dumb without a Britney <laughs> Spears behind me. Jesus. One, two, three, not only you and me. Got yeah, that's great, Tom. <laughs> worst podcast we've ever done. Worst, 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 and long, long. It is long, man. We I could I didn't even realize how long we'd gone. So let's do a short three by three. How do you guys We're feel coming off that? your highness too. Which is like that's true. We had we were like oh, we got to talk about your highness for an hour. Uh, this week's three by three, which I officially now hate. I, I don't like. No, it. it's good. No, okay, I good. Gotta go. Uh, this week's 3 by 3 is uh, the worst movie villains. And by worst, I don't mean, oh, they're so deliciously evil. I mean worst as in you watch the movie and you think that is your villain. Uh, so poorly done villains. You know, because we saw, no spoilers, but we saw I what I think is, is one of, I would easily put her in my top five villains of all time. Like with uh, with Heath Ledger in The Joker, Tilda Swinton in uh, in Michael Clayton, uh, Kate Blanchett and Hannah, uh, you know. So the opposite of st- stuff like this when I say worst villain. Well, so, why do you Tom hate it? It's your topic. Yeah. Uh, because I didn't like what I came up with. Because you know what? There's so many. Being a villain's always the showy part, and yeah. you remember the good ones, but the fumbled ones. There are so many just unremarkable villains, and they're normally in bad movies and. I don't know. It just seems like it's not interesting to talk about the people who failed to do the villain parts. Well, don't I, worry. I broke the list as usual. So. Oh, good. Okay, good. Uh, Kelly, but I think I've also noticed it's fashionable to 
the week out, like you pick everybody picks a topic and i think i started this trend and then you hate it you're just like yeah i hate my topic i'm an, i'm an idiot i shouldn't be picking the topics and I, then that's I, your passive aggressive way of saying no this is a great topic no no i this week i agree that the guy who picks the topic is an idiot and should not be it picking was the topics it was mine so uh, you're you're going first kelly Wan, because you're in well the idea is that you picked the topic because there was something you wanted to get off your chest. Like, oh, that really is the worst villain ever. Actually, do you remember how I picked this topic? No. <laughs> yeah, you guys I don't remember it was, my, it was my week to pick the topic right as we were recording, and I had to open my uh, notes file that I hadn't touched in uh, several euphemisms. months. <laughs> and I just plucked the first one off. I mean, there were only Sounds two like, wait, uh, best desert movie? No, we did that. <laughs> <laughs> so, Kelly, what is your number three worst villain? Uh... Uh, I'm trying to decide who's going to hate me more of the two of you for this one. But wait do you hit my number one. Uh, my number three worst villain ever is, um, although he's, I guess he's a good villain in a way, is Jar Jar Binks. Because he gets away with setting up the Empire. I guess that makes him an awesome villain. <laughs> All right. I don't have a number three. All right. I'm by No, no. Wait. Here's what it is. No. It's like, no. Oh, I, I forgot. You did your fake one first. Oh, you got me again. No, no. It's the real one. I just was thinking about why I picked it again. Well, it's... I already crossed it off. I have to write it again. All right. Jar Jar. No, it's the real one. Okay. It. He did. He really is the third worst villain. In... Kelly Wand is Binks spelled B-I-N-X. Don't pretend you don't know. <laughs> Kelly Wand. Wait. Race? But what movie is he in? He's in all of them. Uh, I want to know if Kelly Wan knows what race Jar Jar Binks is. Yeah, he's a Gungan. He's a Gungan. Oh my God, that's right. Uh, I might have even known that. And yeah, so which? So I'm assuming. Do you mean? Do you mean? Just panicking me. (laughs) Do you mean the Clone Wars? Or not Clone Wars. Uh, what's the second? Attack of the Clone? Revenge of the Clone? What the frick is this? I second? love making you say these things. <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> yeah, Tom's like, so what's easy. that movie called? Is it Jaws Moors? I don't know. Phantom Menace earlier, and you just Phantom ignore Menace. it. Okay, good. Oh. Well, I wrote oh, it, but then I crossed it out because I thought you were doing a fake out. I don't right. think about it every five minutes. No, no. Uh, here's. The, but you understand, did I make a good case for it by not saying anything at all? Because <laughs> 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 here's the thing. There's all these. Here's the thing about the Phantom Menace that I think gets lost in the shuffle. Because I remember, I remember after Phantom Menace came out, and then George Lucas, everyone hated Jar Jar Banks, and then Lucas was like, "No, by the end of the trilogy, you'll admire him." Remember, he said the word admire, and the, like, when did that was? Anyway, my point I, is, I'd stop listening to anything George Lucas said around about 1984. See, I listen to people the more dumb they get. <laughs> which is why I listen to myself a lot. But like Charlie Sheen, all right, never mind. Bad example. But like midichlorian prophecies have been set up as like, okay, all this shit's going to happen because of bloodstream prophecies written a long time ago. We're not going to tell you what the prophecy is, but anyway, it's like Jar Jar Binks sets up the empire by like elevating the emperor to power. So it's like this one dumbass like is part of this prophecy. All right, I'm going to shut up. That's my number three. <laughs> Biggest, what is your number three worst villain in moviedom? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, top that, <laughs> jerk, idiot. Dude. All right, here's a quote you guys won't get. Awesome. She was our idea, and you know it. Unrealized idea, unrealized. What? Your quotes are too hard for me. Too yeah, hard. you won't get it. Uh, this is from a movie called Twister in 1996. <laughs> 
Oh my God, poor Carrie Elways. That's right. Oh, and I this forgot. Is, uh, Carrie Elways as the evil storm chaser. Yeah. Ooh, we have evil the storm black. chasers, and they're in black SUVs. Yeah, SUV. They chase the tornadoes. Yeah. Well, that's the thing a- is, they're scientists who are after money, not after science, <laughs> and that's why they're bad. <laughs> and you know, poor Carrie Elways has has had to play the bad guy. Like I think he played it in Days of Thunder too, and he's just so. I, I like the guy, but he, you know, he's not a bad guy, and and that the screenwriters were so. Uh, it's Michael Crichton and uh, and oh, Martin. He's the, I think. he's the global warming denier. So now that explains why Carrie Elways. <laughs> Michael Crichton wrote Twister. Uh, he, at least he came up with the story. And Who's then the other Anne-Marie writer? Anne Marie Martin. Do we know who that is? Uh, no, she's okay. Anne Marie Martin. That's all we know. <laughs> um, but uh, but that they had to, they felt like they had to have an evil group of storm chasers yeah. to go against Bill Paxton uh, to steal his Dorothy machine and and turn it to their own nefarious, yeah. <laughs> their own nefarious reasons. Remember the machine, sense. Dingus? Remember the marbles of, in the barrel that they? Had I don't. I don't. You don't. That was what they had to do. They had to run. They had to drive to the tornadoes, and there's oh, and release the marbles. Yeah. Yeah. They had to put a barrel by hand in the middle of the road, <laughs> so some marbles could sweep it up. And the payoff of the movie God, was that. the marbles. Because well, see, see, Kelly one. If you don't have Carrie Elways and Twister, then all you've got is just some boring old man versus nature story, and everybody knows those aren't any good. It's like Carrie Elways is the villain, and Bill Paxton's the hero. Oh, <laughs> I can accept Bill Paxton. I'd rather have him than Bill Pullman. I love them both, but oh. I, I don't want Bill Pullman flying a, a plane. Wait a minute. Um, are you serious? You would rather have, as your protagonist, Dingus, Bill Paxton instead of Bill Pullman? Are you saying that like, um, it's a general principle? I, I just don't like Bill Pullman as the president, but I buy Bill Paxton <laughs> as a storm chaser. Storm right. chaser. Would you I, rather that, have that? Had... Apples and tornadoes. Would you rather that Bill Paxton played the lawyer in Killer Inside Me than Bill Pullman? Oh, no. Okay, good. Because I know you have some weird hang-up about Simon Baker in that movie. I thought you might also have some weird hang-up about Bill Pullman. I didn't think he so. It's Baker's. Check. Simon Baker. His problem uh, – so, Kelly Wan. Uh, Dingus, would you go check the other room real quick? Uh, Kelly Wan, Dingus' problem with Simon Baker is he's there's like some weird sexual tension there because Simon uh, Baker was in this romantic comedy called uh, Boy, She's Gonna Get It about Simon Baker and a black woman having an affair where Simon Baker is like – Why I oughta. Yeah, yeah, well, that's right. It was called Why I oughta. And this, this, little, this little romantic comedy, which is cute, whatever, it made Dingus' top ten list that year. What the Spike Lee thing? No, no, it was it was even more on, inconsequential than that. It was Simon Baker's <laughs> the white version. Yeah, yeah, and 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 Simon Baker was her gardener, and he drove around in a jeep with like a, a German Shepherd or whatever riding in the back, and he was all like rugged and good looking, and I think Dingus was really into that for some weird reason. Top ten list. He, yeah, yeah, it was like his number. A romantic like comedy? Any romantic comedy ever? And it was cute. I, I know, yeah, but so a so Dingus movie? had some weird Simon Baker thing. That's that when is... Wendy was listening to his top ten list and he had to appease. <laughs> no, it's boss. not, though. I think he, uh, yeah. But getting back okay. to Twister, my yeah, favorite. So come on back in the room. Okay. Come oh, yeah. Okay, I'm done. <laughs> All right, Carrie always in Twister. Good. Uh, wait, wait. My... Oh, yes, wait, wait. Go my go last ahead. thought on that. Uh, okay. Just FYI, Twister was produced by Spielberg, so it's like Jurassic Park reunion between Michael Crichton and Steven Spielberg. Ah. And that's what it is. It's marbles and fucking cg bullshit <laughs> horseshit jamie kurtz 
Okay, my number three, I cheated uh, because I couldn't come up. I, I had this idea that I wanted to do villains that were good ideas. Like this villain should work on paper, but something went wrong. And I could only come up with two of these. So that's my number one and my number two. But my number three, I'm just, I'm just throwing stuff out here. My number three is John Travolta in anything. So Battlefield Earth, Swordfish, Broken Arrow, The Punisher. I don't know what else to play the villain in. <laughs> that's a face-off. Face-off. Yeah, yeah. Uh, also, face off. He's the he's the hero in face off. Isn't I he? forget who's the hero and who's the villain. He's one. Ah, see, it's uh, all so about motherhood. That's my number three. John Travolta in anything. But, wait, wait, isn't his name? Say- wait, he he yells, "I'm Caster Troy!" Oh my god! Yeah, him. Well, don't he and Nicolas Cage take turns yelling that? Yeah, oh, good point. They're both they both change voices too. It's a voice off. Wait, that movie rules, jerks. I do remember the prison voice off would be a great sequel. Yeah. <laughs> it's an audio play. Uh, the prison was called Air Wand. Do you get it, Kelly Wand? Air oh, you remember that? That's pretty yeah. good. Please, like I hadn't seen that before. <laughs> Gee, uh, put him on your list, but you gave for uh, face off. Respect. <laughs> Understandably. Uh, is, is Broken Arrow any good? That can't be. No, good. lame. Yeah. And I've John actually Wu- never. I've never even seen Swordfish. I'm, I'm happy to see. He all John Woo. No, no, that's different. John Woo right. also. His first American movie was uh, Hard Target with Jean Claude Van Damme mm-hmm. and Wilfred Brimley. Oh, is he? And I don't remember that. Wait, no, maybe I, is that the one that's in like the? I'm pretty sure Wilfred Brimley. The Bayou or some something. action movie. Yeah, with Jean Claude Van Damme, and I'm pretty sure it's a John Woo one. So it's got to be Hard Target. Yeah, and Lance Henriksen's the bad guy, isn't he? Ah. The only thing I remember from that movie is he he kicks a barrel because kicking is his superpower. He's a Belgian kicking bio sheriff, and he kicks a barrel at a dude, and then he shoots it and it puts like it's a flammable barrel. Oh, I do that in video games every day. Boring. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right, Kalyan, what is your number two worst villain in moviedom? Ah, uh, I will do a line. Awesome. Oh, uh, which way is Tom Bombadil? An asshole? No. Um, chick? <laughs> no, he's an awesome villain. Uh, Are you going to do the whole, oh, Sauron's a bad villain because we never see him? Is that what you're doing here? No, I'm going to do Sauron's a bad villain because he doesn't make a fucking new ring. And it's like, he's only invincible because of this piece of jewelry that he made himself that he puts on his finger. And he doesn't want anyone else to wear it, but he makes it so it'll change size to fit a midget's finger even though midgets block the force because all the weed smoke. Kelly, why don't, why don't the eagles just carry the ring to... That's to an idiotic him. point. <laughs> but also, too, and I mean, like, okay, Hannah's about all these archetypes and stuff. Like, what's it represent that you send dudes by flying dinosaur to find a magic ring mm. and they're allergic to water and women? What's mm. that mean? Go. <laughs> Mythology, man. What are you going to do? Uh, he's got an awesome flaming vagina eye. What's wrong with that? Ah, don't be gross. Sorry, my mistake. Dingus, has to, uh, Dingus, Dingus, sometimes an eye is just an eye. Oh. No good point. <laughs> See, Dingus has to prove he, I'm not the Simon Baker guy. <laughs> Tough. I'm rated, man. Uh, Dingus, what, is, what was the name of that movie a few years ago with Simon Baker where he falls in love with a black woman and they have the unlikely relationship? Do you remember? I don't know if you remember that movie. What was that Ring called? Ring 2. I think it was called Something Borrowed. I think you're, I think you're lying. Don't make me Google it because it'll, it'll screw up the podcast. I will Google Something it. Something Borrowed and John Krakauer is in it and he gets smacked in the face with a badminton racket. It's really great. 
I will Google it right now, and then no, it, don't I, worry, it, it will turn. It will erase this podcast, Dingus. Well, maybe that's a good thing. Actually, <laughs> look it up. So, Dingus, either tell me the name of that movie, or tell me your number two worst villain of all time. The number two worst villain of all time is encapsulated in this quote. Why is the most diabolical leader of our time surrounding himself with total nincompoops? Bananas? Val Kilmer McGruber. No. Uh, nincompoops. Who's what the bad guy in Love and Death? I don't think in any movie they say the word nincompoops out loud. Yeah. This is the 21st century, bro. And no movies were made before that. <laughs> <laughs> Give up. I, I don't think Kelly Wand or I has seen this movie, Dingus. Which Can you imagine a- the actor... Gene Hackman saying the word. Oh my God! Are you going to do Lex Luthor? You dudes with your comic book movies and your fantasy Wait. and your your Star Wars. I thought like wasn't isn't, isn't actually you're talking about Superman, right? Is he talking oh, about yeah. Kevin Spacey, Lex Luthor? Now is is Gene Hackman really bad in that? Because I I haven't seen that since I was a kid. I, but wasn't that really cool or not? Am I? He doesn't seem smart, and he's supposed to be a genius. He does seem. No, I, I have no quibble with the um with the performance. He's fine. It's just I find the the uh, villain to be utterly idiotic. Uh, you know, he surrounds himself with nincompoops. and poops. You know, he's got idiot, idiot henchmen and his, his brilliant plan is to nuke California. It's to yeah. buy a bunch of property in the desert and then nuke California. So it magically falls into the sea. And then he has perfect oceanfront property after nuking California, right. which even at the time though, I'm like, Oh, what? But it was supposed yeah, to yeah. be funny, and then it's in Superman Returns. Thing, but but as a villain, I think that's stupid, and I think that's okay. Okay. Well, okay, it was supposed to be like dumb, funny, maybe in that. But then in Superman Returns, Kevin Spacey also surrounds himself with even dumber nincompoops. Like he has Parker Posey and Zach Penn, and like he takes the brakes out on Parker Posey's car as his plan to steal kryptonite, so that. She like runs through traffic, and then his plans to buy real estate because there's a kryptonite continent or something. I think the real problem is just that Terrence Stamp is so awesome in the second movie that it kind of blows it for everyone else. Well, that it's not only that, Tom, and I, I think you're being you might be making a joke here, but no, I'm being serious. Come on, General Zod, Terrence Stamp in anything, General Zod. Come on, but even I, I, he's yeah. trolling. I'm not. I come on, uh, Terrence Stamp. You cannot troll with Terrence Stamp. Comic books. Wait, no, but wait, you're wait. right. You're right in that when when I as a kid saw the second movie, I was I, I remember feeling a sense of relief that oh, there's a real villain here instead of this bumbling idiot. Well, there's uh, a sense of so, menace. Yeah, like there's a sense of menace that comes with Superman two villains, and that's not really a part of Superman, is it? So yeah, absolutely, right. absolutely right. And and there's no there's no sense of he, he feels more like he's annoyed than actually evil. <laughs> wait, who? Lex Luthor. Lex Luthor seems like he's annoyed yeah. with it. You're an idiot. That's not, not how he is in the comics. Otisville, right? did you? Who put Otisville on this map? Is Otis oh in the God, comics? Right. <laughs> I did, boss. Oh, yeah. Otisville's my idea. You know uh, that kind of thing. Then you get General Zod and his and his dudes, and and you're right. It feels like there's menace, and I wanted a little menace. Now, doesn't Lex Luthor in the comics actually get like cancer and have to wear like a powered armor suit? Nerd alert. RGDC universe. <laughs> See, I know about comic books. I love the way you ask questions as if you don't know, Charlie Rose. With a giggle, with a goofy grin, audible. <laughs> I, let's see, I know all. If you guys have any questions about comic books, direct them to me. I can help you. 
Hey, doesn't he? Uh, doesn't Superman even outwit Lex Luthor in Superman Two? Like that's how he beats Zod, as he preys on Lex Luthor's dumbness with the room. I don't think Lex Luthor's in Superman. He is, for no yeah, reason. He walks into the White House and says, hey guys, I'm ready to join Yeah, you. General Zod recruits him to do nothing. It's like uh, X-Men 3 when Phoenix goes, I won't be Professor X's lackey, and then she's like Magneto's lackey. So I actually have some good news for you guys. You know who General Zod is in the Zack Snyder Superman. Ugh. I mean, hmm. who? Uh, a fellow named Michael Shannon, an actor I really, really like. Uh, do you know who Michael Shannon is, Kelly Wand? Uh, was he the woman who's nude in American Pie? <laughs> yes. <laughs> no, he has two first names. It's her brother. Uh, the, they, they have a good, a bona fide good actor playing the, the villain. In What's the, he been in? Let's see. I think he was nominated. Was he nominated for an Academy Award for his awful, awful part in that uh, Kate Winslet? Resurrection Road or Revolution? Yes, yes, Revolution Road, Revolutionary Road, something like that. So folks know him from that small part where he plays a, a mentally a, a guy with like a mentally handicapped dude. He's like disturbed, whatever you want to call it. Uh, he was in a, a kind of a cool William Friedkin movie with Ashley Judd called Bug. He was just in a terrible, terrible Werner Herzog movie with a great title called uh, I think it's Oh my son, Oh my son, what have ye done? <laughs> uh, about a dude who chops his mother's head off with a sword. I love Werner Herzog, goddammit. <laughs> Werner Herzog, that magnificent son of a bitch, yeah. Uh, <laughs> guy never dies. He just keeps making... So anyway, Michael Shannon is a uh, a tall, gangly fellow who's actually a good actor, but he tends to play, like, hard. He tends to get, like, little bit parts here and there. Uh, he's really, really good in a cool sort of Chandler-esque contemporary detective story called uh, The Missing Person with my girlfriend Amy Ryan. Uh, mm. yeah. You can't be trusted. I know. You like her too much. I do. I really do. Uh, so uh, anyway, so he's he's he'll hopefully do better than Gene Hackman in uh, Superman one. We'll see. Nice. All right, my number two villain. You ready for this? I'll give you guys a line. Are you ready? Uh, I gotta think of one now. Uh, it's, it's, <laughs> I like it's, it. It's bio digital jazz, man. Oh God. <laughs> so yeah. okay, now here's where my that's from source code. <laughs> it could be. Here's where uh, I've got a concept now for my list, for the two of them, uh, for the two of the things in my list. And that's a villain that would be awesome on paper that seems like it would be great, but they screwed it up. So I love the idea of let's digitize, let's make a fake younger Jeff Bridges be the villain. And it'll look kind of like creepy, but a bit realistic. And we'll play on this idea that is it really the kid's father or not and all this stuff about you know, the errant father and son reunited and uh, it'll be cool, but it's not. It's just I just so many things. Just, as a matter of fact, I would argue nothing works in Tron. So the villain is one of the many things that does not work in Tron. It was just ridiculous. If you had explained it to me, it would have made me that much more excited mm-hmm. to see Tron. Uh, but then I actually saw it and it was miserable. Shit writing. It's not Jeff Bridges' fault. You know what it is? He's terrible in that movie. Nah, but dude, it's always the right. He's a good actor. I, he's if a great he was actor. Given... And I think he can do great things with bad scripts. Jeff Bridges has been in some horror. Uh, you know what I think? Hasn't he been in bad movies and been good? Man Who Stare at Goats wasn't good. He's fine in that. Yeah, okay. It's always yeah. the writing. Always blame the writer, Tom. Okay, I'll blame the writer. Uh, so yeah, there the you producers go. Producers of the movie industry. <laughs> That's you know, I actually I like that choice. You know, I really like it because yeah. I remember us talking about 
all the possibilities that, that could have happened with, with the two dads yep. and the things they could have done emotionally with the son that they just decided. Eh. So that's I a good choice. I like that, I don't Tom. like your choice, Tom, because everything about that movie was bad and you're just like plucking, you're cherry picking because the heroes me. sucked. So we have one against, one for. So we have one more vote coming in. Who has? Oh, that's my vote. I vote for, so I win. You're wrong. <laughs> Are you sure you want to vote for? Are you, you thought this through? Uh, Shadowcat has been conspicuously silent. Podcast. What's going on? He's actually outside. Uh, I'll have to do a cat check in a minute here. But, uh, cat check. All right, so Fake Jeff Bridges and Tron Legacy is my number two. We are up to our number ones. These are... Since we are using the superlative, these are the worst villains in moviedom. Kelly Wand, who is the worst villain in all of movies ever? Uh, okay, even by this standard, I admit Jar Jar Banks doesn't make any sense. But the between number three and number two, I thought, oh, uh, worst villain means they're just dumbasses. Like they're not they're they're not good at what they're doing. They're bad at their jobs. Mm-hmm. To put it, Donald Trumpisms. So my number one, you guys are going to just be annoyed now, not the yet, but it's my number one is Jack Torrance, just because I think I agree with Grady, like his heart's just not in it, because if your only kill for the whole movie is Scatman Crothers, it's total C minus. I mean, because he could have waited by for his son by the exit of the hedge maze or a disabled. Well, do you agree with Stephen King or are you... Are you agreeing? Are you saying the character itself? I think it's just the character because the movie's good, <laughs> unlike Tom's choice of Tron Lagerfeld. <laughs> but I'm thinking if the Overlook was smart and the Overlook's supposed to be a smart villain, so maybe that should be my number three. They would have worked on Wendy because she's like Dingus does. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I mean, they picked a dumbass. I picked a guy who can't get his shit together to like outwit. I don't know. That's just bad villainy picking, right? Okay, my number one's over. All right. Oh, great. All right, Seconded. But the idea of, of him in the book becoming a villain, he's supposed to be this, this normal guy with some anger problems who gets possessed right and that's what stephen king's gripe with the movie was but the movie does so many awesome things and the twins are really creepy like they're the greatest villains ever and they don't even do anything and the old woman that he never mind i don't want to spoil the shining for anyone who hasn't seen it but uh so i I recently watched a a low-budget horror movie which was actually pretty good and had a really good actor named josh stewart in the lead about a guy and his girlfriend who are driving through the desert. It's called uh, Beneath the Dark. They're driving through the desert, and you know he's. They start fooling around in the car, and he almost wrecks the car. But he's like, okay, I stop fooling around. You know, she's doing suggestive things to him, and it distracts him. So they almost wreck. He's like, okay, stop this. We gotta, you know, what? we gotta pull over for the night. Let's go to a motel. So they go to a motel, and something sinister's happened at the motel. And there are strange people there, and you don't know what's going on. And I'll spoil it because it's low budget enough that nobody's ever going to see it. <laughs> That's your criterion now. Yeah, but what it turns out is that they actually did get in a car wreck. And this is his last chance at redemption before moving on to the next level. So this motel is like a sinister place. And he, and what happens is at this motel, you have to um, stay there as the motel keeper until someone who's 
whose life has somehow been involved with yours, you can then put them through the paces for their test. So it turns out that he has a dark past and he wronged the guy who's who's the hotel keeper and the hotel keeper has to walk him over to the afterlife. And it's actually kind of cool. But early on in the movie, I think they tip their hand early on. This guy smokes by having him having another character offer him cigarettes. It's a low budget enough movie where they don't have the product placement. <laughs> but the character remarks that they're overlook cigarettes. Oh. <laughs> And you're really? like, I know that's exactly what I'm thinking. What? I'm like, come on. So he's ripping like, off the shining. Shiny. Right. <laughs> you're going to give us that blatant clue that early on. Uh. <laughs> I wasn't liking it before you said that. I was like, oh, it sounds like a lame rip off of the shining. And then he threw the worst product placement. Uh, yeah. So, you, All right, watch, so. you know, for a guy who doesn't read or watch Game of Thrones, you watch a lot of <laughs> shit, including The Visitor. Which well, here's a funny thing. So this movie Beneath the Dark, I also saw uh another movie which was almost thematically identical that was directed by poor thomas jane and he put himself in the lead and he did it with a lot of green screen stuff that so it looked like these old ec comics um which is a cool concept but it's the same thing a dude and a chick driving through the desert and there's this weird like afterlife stuff going on around them and and the thomas jane one was just wretched so by the time i saw this Beneath the dark thing with Josh Stewart, I was like, ah, this this is kind of cool. Oh, afterlife, yeah. lost yeah, finale. I do I do watch a lot of crappy movies, Kelly Wand. I know, I know. I watch them while I work. Uh, so. What are you working on? You know, like writing or or playing a game. You or, you, that's why. So while you write, that's on in the background, like Thomas Jane. Yes. I, I watched today I while I was while I was putting while I was getting stuff together to put on quarter to three. I watched a horror movie called uh, Arachnid. <laughs> was it on sci-fi channel you know what it wasn't a sci-fi because you could tell there was way too much blood in it uh but it was just about an alien spider on uh some island and it preys on people and uh yeah the sci-fi version would be a ripoff of arachnid called arachnoid or something well no it would be it would be uh like arachnid versus centipede right actually ooh, I, I wonder if there's a movie like that because i want to see it yeah let's actually let's write that yeah. isn't that the sequel to arachnid uh, the human centipede there's actually I, I remember being in a, a video store once so that says how long ago this was nobody goes to those anymore and seeing uh what was it uh mongoose versus cobra uh or no oh, and there was one like uh komodo versus gila monster or something it's like they, what? that's the it's same just, it, it's just like put two animals together have them fight and hire some washed up 80s <laughs> i remember being a kid and being totally disappointed and bummed like like tra- like traumatized by king kong versus godzilla because they were like they totally fucked up king kong like he's not the same size as godzilla. <laughs> <laughs> did it break canon kelly yeah Wall? they weren't to scale and it was really wacky and like what this is serious business this if is- i'm not mistaken godzilla's scale has always been variable right like is he always like taller than skyscrapers yeah but king kong climbs them so ah get right right you know? as, as, I mean, Godzilla, there's never been like a smaller version of Godzilla. I mean, Roland Emmerich. Yeah, Godzuki. F that guy. Ah, baby <laughs> Godzilla, you're right. And the Velociraptors in the Roland Emmerich Anonymous uh, prequel. <laughs> Dude, Anonymous. I can't wait. When's that? Uh, I'm so horny for that movie. David Thewlis is in it. Really? David Thewlis has been Why am I saying it like that? Like David Thewlis of Dr. No, that, Tom Sigh after saying David Thewlis was amazing. It's oh, a great okay. Sigh. See, you're better at Tom detection. 
Dingus, what is? Give us a line from your num- the movie that features your number one worst villain of all time. Hello, Vinny. It's your uncle Bingo. Time to pay the check. Pee Wee's Big Adventure. Uh, Joe Montana from Godfather Three. No. Uh, oh, staying Vin- alive. Wait. Oh, oh, I know. My cousin Vinny. No. Well, it says Vinny. What? How many movies have? Dingus wouldn't be that. Uh, obvious with his quote for you. It's a good point. How about this one? Uh, never rub another man's rhubarb. Oh, wait. That's... Uh... Cabe and Mrs. Miller. No, no. This is something... I'm an idiot. It's Un- Jack. Unfortunately, Jack. yeah, Jack Nicholson's getting short shrift in, in our lists. And this is just as lazy as my number two because it's the Joker and Batman in 1989. Oh, gosh. Oh, yeah. That's a good choice. Mm-hmm. Dingus kind of won the list. No, this is lazy. It's it's just it's stupid. But you know, whereas, whereas I have no quibble with uh, with G- with the way Gene Hackman plays uh, Lex Luthor because it's supposed to be silly and and he's an expert. I I hate this performance and I hate this character. Um, and in retrospect, I only hate it more after seeing The Dark Knight because that is such an expert interpretation. And I understand these are two totally different interpretations of of the batman mythos or whatever the hell uh, but I, I just don't find nicholson's joker the least bit threatening he's a buffoon in, in execution and concept i understand the concept of the film is different but the problem is that burton allows the joker performance to take over the whole movie uh, and it's an out of control performance that makes no sense and is not threatening at all and then what ruins it even more is that in the next movie you know in this movie there's too much villain in the next movie he adds more villains to 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 take to to make up for that so i i hate i hate this i absolutely hate this film. i think it's terrible so there you go i i remember kind of not hating him before he becomes the joker like when he looks normal and uh what's mick jagger's girlfriend who's in it who's like his girlfriend he just figures what's her name jen so anyway yeah. Remember, he's looking in the mirror, and she's like, you look fine. He goes, I didn't ask. Like, he's a total <laughs> dick to her. Come on, that's good. Remember when he goes, remember when he goes, uh, uh, he says, like, uh, wait till they get a load of me. Remember that? That was awesome. Yeah. God, that was a great scene. I love that. It was better in the trailer. Remember when he says, uh, when he's like, uh, where does he get all those toys? Remember that? Man, that was great. Remember, remember when, when he tells uh, everybody in New York that they need an anima? That's funny. <laughs> It's not New York. It's Gotham City. Yeah, oh, Dingus. Gotham needs Obviously. to poop. Remember when he dances, poop. he dances to Prince music and defaces the art because that's what an evil, creepy villain would do. Ah, poor Jack Nicholson. He paints. It's a, tempt- what, he made a good check. I'm tempted to just pick Jack Nicholson in The Departed now. Uh, oh, damn, Tom. Uh, oh, that's the, uh, that's that's the best. Ah, good job. <laughs> no, so here's my one. So here, Again, these are ones that sound good on paper. Uh, that in in theory I would like. So I, I love my, I love my Joan Allen. I I think she's great. I really like what they do with her in the Bourne uh, Identity and Supremacy movies. Uh, <laughs> she is uh, one of my favorite things and one of my favorite all time movies. I Face off. Um, I just love how Joan Allen has this. Oh, and and good lord, oh, what's the Kevin Costner thing? I can't believe I didn't even think of this before. I, I Dragonfly. Uh, the upside of anger. Yeah, the upside of anger. Uh, God, I love that movie. So, Kelly Wand, you didn't do your homework this week, did you? Which one? You were supposed to watch something this week, and you didn't do your homework. What was he Rubber? supposed to watch? Uh, uh, no, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Tom. Oh, no, but what was he supposed to watch? 
I, I want to give him grief too. The video yes. pit. But go ahead, Tom. I thought it was rubber. I'm sorry. I'm, uh, I'm, I derailed you. Go ahead, Tom. Let's get back to Tom's number one worst villain. So anyway, so this is one where this idea, like Joan Allen, let's have this authority. Uh, she's like an authority figure in this movie, and she'll be the supervillain bad guy. And where she's a supervillain bad guy, she's a prison warden. Uh. And not only that, she does not like crude language. She's like this <laughs> uptight, straight-laced prison warden, but she's corrupt. And it's in the horrible... Uh, remake of Death Race that Paul Anderson did, um, which, of course, the original Death Race was about dudes driving across the country just running over people for points. Yeah. It was this campy, like, gore film. But in this remake, the Paul Anderson one, and God, man, when that guy screws up, he just screws up so bad. Freaking Paul Anderson, <laughs> man. Uh, it, it's a reality show in a prison. So it's a tightly contained it's a video game it's like what if death race was like a video game and good lord just like kelly Wan talking about kicking a barrel and shooting it i do that every day i play freaking games where cars drive around a track and power power ups ups. good lord yeah so this movie is so crappy and one of its biggest crimes is getting joan allen and completely doing nothing you know what it actually gets ian mcshane also he's in that they do nothing with him so joan allen is supposed to be the villain and she's just so miscast it doesn't have any appreciation for what she can do and i normally love me some profanity my favorite parts of like uh like your highness you know what i just love when danny mcbride says i just want to stay here with this sword and fuck shit up that's funny i love hearing that so the big payoff there are two uh like payoff moments in death race and one of them is supposed to be when joan allen gets so mad she finally cusses and poor joan allen you can just tell she's so embarrassed to say this line and it's just so like coarse and uncreative and she finally gets so put out with being foiled by jason statham's cleverness and his shenanigans and he's out planned her and she says something like I'm going to paraphrase. I'm not even going to get it right. It's such a horrible line. And I apologize if there's any people with delicate sensibilities listening. But she says something like, if that cocksucker thinks he can fuck with me, I'm going to show him who can shit on the sidewalk. Uh, <laughs> and I'm I can't like, remember that. I'm like, what, what does that even mean? What? I, what? <laughs> and the other money shot or money moment is... Whoa. <laughs> there's a point where... She is so put out with him that they are going to that they are going to put a uh, they're going to introduce the super killer car onto the track, and it's called the Dreadnought, and it's a big you know it's everybody ripping off Road Warrior where all the cars have to fight against the big tanker and it's got armor and yes. spikes and guns and whatnot on it and it's called the Dreadnought. So Joan Allen gets the line, "Release the Dreadnought." Uh, that should be awesome. An actor should look at that and think, you really want me to say this? This is ridiculous? Okay, let's get ridiculous, Paul Anderson. And it, there's just no life to it. I don't even think anybody appreciates what a ridiculous line it is. And So just poor Joan Allen uh, just kind of left adrift in that horrible Death Race remake. So you I saw that, Kelly Wand? I didn't hate it as much as you, although right. you're reminding me how lame it is. But I think I fell for it, A, because it was still the director of There Will Be Blood, so we know... <laughs> He's talented. And also, I liked the girl in it. The co-driver. Yeah, the pointless. They all get, yeah, and they're all prisoners, too. Like, they're all super hot, supermodel. Like, it was so bad, it was making me laugh, like Skyline, kind of. But see, I don't think it knows it was bad. Yeah, like Skyline, I don't think it knew it was bad. No, no, but for, for 
Paul Anderson, it was making me laugh more than normal. Okay. Like, remember the part, and it was, they even gave this away in the trailer, like, it was so cool. Like, this will sell the movie. Remember the part, and there's, I hate it in movies when they do this, when someone says something like, I'm never gonna die, you can't kill me, and then, like, he, they die, like, they get cut to pieces or something. Yeah, and a car hits him, and you, you yeah. see, it's like a CG of a car smacking into him, and the thing is, the, you know, a death race movie should be full of that kind of stuff right. against like innocent people. Like that's mm-hmm. kind of the point of the original. Yeah. Death race. And Paul Anderson didn't have the cojones to make an actual death race remake. So the only people that die are the worst villains that deserve it. Uh, and I just hate that. That's so. They lame. did that with Rollerball too. It was like a science fiction futuristic movie, and then they remade it so it's a reality show where people pay to see violence. Like that would like people would pay to see it like they can see they can pirate death race (laughs) and also introducing that tank it's like doesn't that fuck up the whole like isn't it like a gambling system like isn't that isn't that why people watch because they're wagering on the racers well but you know what i mean the whole mechanics of (laughs) you know the spread or something yeah but but raising (laughs) the stakes every time okay now we're gonna have weapons on the track okay now we're gonna have a big old giant truck you know i love this idea of like breaking the rules every time but it's just, uh, you know what, the, the movie's just it's so... It's never good, right. yeah. yeah. So. There's no good action. And I was, we didn't, I forgot to say this during the um, Hannah part, but like... No spoilers. No, no, I was just going to say, like, your Zack Snyder's should study Hannah. Like, oh, to see yeah. how to do an action sequence. Like, it, this is how you show people action yeah. <laughs> in a film. Study, mm-hmm. learn, live. <laughs> yeah. So none of you picked... Uh... Any of that? I guess Dingus is uh, like I, I think some of the m- most widely revealed villains, reviled villains, and this doesn't matter to me because I could care less about the the movies are like the the Joel Schumacher and uh, who did the Val Kilmer Batman? They're, I get these confused. There's Batman Forever and Batman and Robin. Are those both Joel Schumacher? Yeah. Yeah. So the, they, those have like terrible villains. Clooney's the one like Mister Mister Freeze is reviled. Yeah. And uh, and Jim Carrey's Riddler and Poison Ivy and uh, yeah, but Mister Freeze because Mister Freeze isn't there even almost like a Busby Berkeley like ice skating scene or something? Feel cold, Tom. <laughs> but doesn't he call out ice skaters at one point or something? And they do like a yeah. dance over. I don't know. Oh, Schumacher, you're so awesome. <laughs> All right, what runners up did you gentlemen have? I had Kate Blanchett in the fourth Indiana Jones movie. Yeah, God, yeah, that is weak, isn't it? Remember, she's supposed to be psychic too. Like she's set up as a psychic Russian and then she never does anything. And then some, she has an, a dump, an alien kills her by staring at her. And it's the same payoff as the third movie. Like the chick wanted too much knowledge. And, right, right, right. Yeah. And uh Goldfinger for not killing James Bond. Cause he's like, I saw that again recently and he's James Bond's like a prisoner for the whole movie. I don't remember that, but like, it's like the whole movie he has like a laser up to his balls and like nothing. <laughs> And also Count Dooku, Tom. <laughs> oh, just I, never, I just didn't understand what he was doing. I didn't get it. I don't well, know. And then he, yes, trying to overthrow the Republic. Duh. You know, right. trade trade agreements. But he's already powerful. But he's he's like a tea partier, Kelly Wand. But is he powerful? Like he can't be. Yes, yeah. t- Kelly Wand. He's a tea partier with a lightsaber and a robot army. And then he's used as a patsy to make Anakin behead him. Wait, what? What are you talking about? When does that happen? Oh, thank you. <laughs> what runners up did you have? Uh, I really like Jabba the Hutt. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I want to hump Dingus. He's so good. <laughs> like you. 
I I apologize. I've Star Wars way too much tonight. I think I don't. We know you're baiting Tom. That's fine. I know. I okay. As long as we're clear. <laughs> I love Hannah. Uh, bait Tom. The Stay puffed marshmallow man is pretty dumb. No. What? I think that's the point, Dingus. You missed the joke. Tom. <laughs> I mean, Dingus. Which one are you? <laughs> Did you know and, the Flash can speed talk, Paul? Uh, <laughs> and you Skynet, like Stay Puff? Skynet and Terminator Salvation is really dumb because uh, they could have killed okay. Kyle and they didn't kill uh, Kyle. <laughs> you guys are just trolling. Any other trolls? <laughs> Sorry. Any other It'll be everyone who didn't listen to the podcast like writing in for this here's threat. mine here, here's here's one of my runners up you ready for this dingus uh 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 what the heck? matthew what the heck is his last name uh no no uh matt dylan in crash <laughs> what do you think of that dingus huh huh how about that i don't, I don't remember him and cronenberg working together <laughs> that's me trolling dingus oh here you go here's the villain here's a great villain uh uh, uh, that's not the what's list. The, what's the drunk woman's name? Uh, oh, for Pete's sake, not Florence. No. Uh, oh, good lord. Uh, oh, uh, oh, I know who you mean. Uh, Cloris Leachman. Yes, Cloris Leachman in Spanglish. <laughs> she is a horrible villain. She is really horrible. She's too, All right. Too evil for the movie. It's. Kelly one. What is our three by three for uh, for next week? Is it a good one or is it a is it a lousy one? I had a lousy one, and at the last second, I thought of a good one. Oh, good. So you had a substitution, as they say in sports. Yeah. Right. Uh, my second choice was better, unlike my synopsis earlier. Mm-hmm. <laughs> anyway, uh, Tom agrees. Yeah, dude, that sucks. Okay. Uh, three by three for next week is three best. And this, I like picking things that have to do with the movie we just saw, so I think you'll especially appreciate this. Three best senses of place. Best uses of sense of place. I'm pretty sure that's a rerun. Oh, <laughs> wonder I like it. Are you gonna? Uh, since that was your topic, Dingus, or I think are you, are you gonna call an audible? I don't know if I use that correctly. Wait, yeah, it's this topic. That's, that's true. I did already do that one. Sorry. Okay, I'm not proud of it anymore. <laughs> so what one you had that wasn't any? I good. was just kidding. A lot better. Uh, okay, did we do this one? Three best plot twists? Or worst? Or both? <laughs> three, three most mediocre. All right. You want the lame one I had before that I know we haven't done because it's so bad I would have remembered? <laughs> it's up to you, Kelly. Can we just redo best you, senses? Of you are in the catbird seat. I don't trust Dingus's silence right now. Uh, no, I, I would actually recommend against redoing Best Senses of Place, because then I'm just going to pick the same three, I'm pretty sure. I will go back, I will look up what I had, and I'll go, yeah, those are, those are still the Best Senses of Place. <laughs> okay, okay, I got a good one. Okay. I, I apologize to everyone. Three worst screen couples. Huh? Mm, yeah, we've done that one, too. No, we haven't. You did that one. <laughs> you, you did a least convincing you guys are trolling me we didn't do senses of place (laughs) didn't we do like bad chemistry or something no Uh, it just feels like it i think what you're saying is we've done the podcast too long and now we've so worst screen couples three worst screen couples now do you need to specify any like gender uh or familial relationship uh restrictions or requirements you sound like you hate it yeah i I always sound like that you know that because i'm trying to maintain a dispassionate uh, disinterested stance. Put it this way: if we haven't done it yet, I'll call it a success at this point. Okay. Is this different from? Okay, so you did do least convincing movie couples when we did Night and Day. Okay. No, we didn't. Really? It was your topic. 
Yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> Are you looking over the list of you, Kelly? One, you've opened the wrong Word document. Don't open the Word document of the ones that we've used. Open the Word document of the ones that we haven't used. <laughs> All right, here's an here's one. Okay. Ready? Yep. Three best. Are you making this up as you're talking? No, it's stuff I wrote. <laughs> this in case something dumb happens on the podcast, this will be my abort button. Okay, this is your backup. Yeah, this is. Remember how proud I was of the. <laughs> All right. Three best uh, non-human primates besides King Kong. All right, that's my. I was just kidding. This. Movie. Oh, okay. Because there've been a lot of movies with monkeys. Okay, ready. Mm-hmm. Three best movies set in a single location. Okay. Three. You need okay. Let's just cut. Let's just get the hell out of here. Or okay, I can live with this. I I can live with your like I said you're in the catbird seat as long as it's like something that we haven't done. Well, I'm clar I'm making sure we haven't because now you're making me so doubt. <laughs> that one does not sound familiar to me. I'm pretty sure we have not done three best movies set in a single location. Do you need to set any parameters on the extent of that location? Not at this point. I think I've embarrassed okay. myself enough. Because like I mean I don't I mean you know the planet Earth. Well, you know fair, like do you do you want to say oh you this, mean the planet Earth is a location. <laughs> reality time (laughs) okay so for example source code is set in multiple universes so it can't be on the list but every other movie can be good job spoiling source code spoiler alert uh but so just use location at our discretion like you're not trying to say like a my dinner with andre thing where it's all in the same room you just mean like i guess i'll take that off the list Oh, I had a better one now, but never mind. I kind of no, I, I, you can go with whatever you like. I'm cool with best location. No, I like this one. I like okay. this. But, but what I'm saying is, do you want us to just do with that as we will, or do you need to finesse what you mean by single location? Uh, I'm getting the sense you don't need to finesse it. <laughs> well, yeah. I'm not sure what you're asking. Uh, like, for instance, I sometimes think of a location as a city. I don't, I don't know if you're wanting us to do something like a 44-inch chest where it's all mainly... Yeah, it's one room or like. Except I'm taking that off the table, so now you can't do it. What do you think okay. about? Well, gotcha. technically, that's also that there are other settings there, but also there can only be metric references in the title. Not he's trying to limit you so that you don't troll your own list. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to shoo. I'm trying to force a Star Wars choice from Tom in a list. I don't think Star Wars takes place in a single location. Ah, he said it. Ah, you got me. Good call. All right, there. All right, so there you go. That's our three by three next week. Three best uh, Star Wars. Three best movies called Star Wars set in a single location. We will be seeing uh, Jane Eyre next week. <laughs> I think there's several production of Jane Eyre. Make sure you see the one with Mia Wasikowska. Uh, that's the one we'll be uh-huh, seeing. That's so why you want to see it. Join us for that next week. I am Tom Chick. I have been joined by Christian. Milidisky, I think. Christian Milidisky. You'll get around. When you when when you visit Sri Lanka, you'll know it's Christian Morosky. <laughs> and Kelly Wand. If Stephanie the Dancer's listening, I just want you to know I only podcast in my spare time. Most of the time I'm really in a racquetball. So. <laughs>
Okay, three lamest post-closing theme podcast placeholder quips. I've never been in a room like this. 